For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in this sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, this this is embarrassing. Uh, a dude wrote in. Like, I'm, this is kind of like stunningly embarrassing. But a guy wrote in, and uh, he's driving all around the place. He says he drove from he drove from Northwest Wisconsin through the Prairie Provinces of Canada into the Yukon, all the way to the Alaska coast, ten thousand miles of highway. Listened to a bunch of podcast episodes, and decided he needed to scold me about. Attributing a quote to Aldo Leopold that Aldo Leopold did not say. The quote is, ethical behavior is doing the right thing when no one else is watching, even when doing the wrong thing is legal, which I've quoted a thousand times. He says, Leopold never said such a thing, ever. Now, he like goes on to be real mean to me. This guy's name's Keith. But then you could tell that he had the same problem because I have searched through the Leopold archives in Madison, Wisconsin, while I was like writing on a related topic and i found no such quote anywhere in his writings or speeches he scoured all of his works doesn't find those words last year after seeing an anti-hunting group and a pro-hunting group both use that quote in the same week attributing it to leopold i decided to answer the question once and for all i contacted an old associate kurt mine the world's greatest leopold authority a trustee of the leopold foundation a professor of ecology at University of Wisconsin, the author of the definitive Leopold biography. He doesn't know where that quote came from either. He has read every quotable word Leopold ever wrote or said. Gosh, I feel like in Bugle Magazine's column, dude, what is that column called? Ethics or Situation Ethics, I believe, is mm. is the column. Come on, someone help me out. Nobody else reads Bugle. No, 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 I know the. I, I want to say that about. that quote attributed to Aldo Leopold is like in the header of that column. I've been <laughs> reading that son of a bitch and quote for my not my whole life, but a lot of it. I got turned on to Aldo Leopold. I could tell you the year I got turned on to Aldo Leopold would have been. Like 1996. The reason I'm thinking of that year because that was the first year we tried to cook a deer's tongue, which we'll be talking about shortly. Um, another thing, research just came out. They've been doing this extensive study of uh, links and fishers. Hold on, are we done with the quote? Oh, you that's, want to talk about that more? That's it. No, go ahead. Well, did you do? I just feel like I feel no, but I feel like he's, <laughs> I, I feel like he's probably right. As rude as he is. Here's how he ends his email. <laughs> Aldo was a great man and a deep, deep thinker, but he never said what you keep saying. He said, stop it. <laughs> That's how he ends it. Just straight talk. Stop it. 
Interesting. <laughs> Sounds like my daughter. Stop it. Oh, I think we're going to get... Uh, you might get a get, follow-up email yeah, on we'll that one. Well, I didn't say his last name. No, no, no. How many no. dudes from are running all, around from, named Keith? No, from other people. How many dudes are driving around 10,000-mile loops named Keith? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that this will be his favorite podcast of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, he'll eat it up. He'll eat it up. This one's because for he's you, like, Keith. yeah, that was I'm me. right. You're wrong. <laughs> this one's for you. Yeah. He's got a lot of... Um, He's he's one of those dudes that uh, is like in a, you get to the bottom of his email and he he has a lot of logos of his affiliations. Like you know you go on like hunting and fishing chat rooms forums. Hmm. Everybody ends with like a quote. Sure, like forty five ACP because shooting twice is stupid. Stuff like that. Like guys will like have a quote that like really sums up their personality. <laughs> he runs with um he runs with like his affiliations. I like the guy because he's the kind of guy that rather than sitting there being annoyed, hmm. he's like, you know what? He'd probably like to know. I'm going to send him a note. But in his email, stop like, it. The bottom tagline, he doesn't have any Leopold quotes. <laughs> no. I, I'm going to put that quote in the bottom, I think. And I was going to say that I said it. <laughs> now, that, now that no one knows Steven where it, now, that, now that no one knows where it came from. Yeah, maybe maybe he's just giving you permission to just own that one. Mm-hmm. I think so. I'm going to start. I'm going to start making that I said it. And after your quote says Steve Rinella, and then it says thank you, Keith. <laughs> Here's another quote that probably isn't true, but I heard that Sammy Hagar. Have we talked about this before, Giannis? I don't think so. I heard that Sammy Hagar. And I haven't looked up to see if he said this. It kind of doesn't make sense. But I heard that Sammy Hagar said that his lyrics come from thinking he knew what someone was saying in a song and then learned what they're actually saying and then just took what he thought they were saying and made it a song. So kind of plagiarism. Like how in in Agata, you know, in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. it sounds like he's saying in Agata de Vida. So It'd be like if you wrote a song like, well, now that I know he's saying in the Garden of Eden, I'm going to write a song where someone says in Agata de Vida. But I don't know what he could have heard that would make that where he thought they were saying, I can't drive 55. Oh, yeah, the original. Like, what, what did he, he actually what say? What was the song? No, he is saying. He, that, yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, what yeah, Sammy no, Hagar I, said? Yeah, totally. So you can't take that and go like, well, that's how he must have come up with I Can't Drive I've got a 55. great example. Or Moss Tequila. You know Tequila. that song, uh, I can't remember who the original artist is, but uh, Stuck in, a, in Lodi Again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Credence. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. For many years, decades, I thought that they were saying only the good die young. <laughs> 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 There's a similar song, similar lyrics, and it sounds a little So similar. that's how they came up with that song, Only the Good Die Young. That's how Billy Joel came up with that? Maybe. I thought Towns Van Zant penned. He stuck might in have. Lodi. He yeah. might have. Not Credence. He wrote, he wrote every song. Unbeknownst to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. He wrote all the songs. Yeah. Tragic. Okay. Him, him and JJ Kale. Can I move on to this Fisher research out of Maine? There's a good Please. one. Everybody knows what a Fisher is. So it's a member of the Weasel family, a mustelid, like a souped up Pine Martin, which mm-hmm. is like a souped up Weasel. Uh, they're doing some lynx research in Maine, and they're finding that, and this is bizarre, they're finding that fishers successfully prey on lynx. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Because they're putting, they have lynx with 
uh, they have collared links. And what people do when they're doing mortality studies is you you put a collar on a thing that like logs a GPS waypoint every whatever. I don't know for I don't know what's typical in a mortality study, but it logs a GPS waypoint every X hours. And then all of a sudden you see that that thing doesn't move for an unusual period of time. And then you go there quickly and ask, try to ascertain what's going on. They're doing the lynx work in the winter, so there's snow on the ground, so you can get a pretty vivid picture of what happened. And fishers seem to get on their trail and track them. And they even mentioned in this thing that it seems that during snow flurries, during snowstorms, they will make their move hmm. and jump on the lynx and kill it by biting the back of its neck. Now, this should also be known about fishers is there's some bad mofos because they're one of the few things that really regularly kills porcupines. They get them rolled over and attack the soft, quillless belly patch. Pine martins do too, right? I don't know about pine martins. I heard that. Um, They're cousins. Yeah. A uh, guy wrote in about uh, Mark Kenyon was on this show, and he's talking about eating apples, how you can eat apples to mask your the, the, the scent that you breathe out. Uh, I don't know if that works. Nah, I remember hearing the same thing about carrots. Like, eat a bunch of apples, then you smell like something deer would want to eat. This guy was saying one of the upsides, and he acknowledged the many downsides, one of the upsides of, of being a chaw dog is that he when he's up in his tree spitting out chew spit he's he's that deer come up and lick up that dip mm-hmm. whoa Ooh. you don't buy that no i'm i that's gonna get people chewing yeah a guy wrote in that we talk about chew too much and it's gonna make and we've had a couple people write in and say that us talking about chew made him made them start dipping again relapse he pulled into a gas station and bought a tin <laughs> Well, and another guy said that we're talking about dip. And I feel like when I'm talking about dip, I'm talking about people getting cancer and riddled with holes in their face. But he said we're going to make kids start dipping if we don't stop talking about dip. So I, I, I hesitate to talk about the deer attractant qualities of but dip. The, but the one thing that we're missing there is that you don't have to catalyze dip to have a smell by putting it in your mouth. You just bring an extra Yeti just and dump, dump a, a can in there with some hot water and then dump it around your tree stand. Like, it doesn't have to touch your body. That's a good point. Come you on. just buy a log. Yeah. <laughs> have a thermos. Yeah, just dribble it the whole way out, you know. <laughs> Cancer-free. Or Thank just, you, ha- just have Garrett just put the lid on a bunch of his Garrett Gatorade bottles. And yes. Sell them. Ooh. Save them. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to a sporting goods store. And yeah. It'll be next to the Doe and Rut urine. is just a bottle of Doug. Dirt's. It should be Doug Duran's piss and Dirt's juice spit, Dirt's man. spit. <laughs> Or you make a concoction of Buckman juice, Buckman juice, and Dirt Myth spit with some apple. That'd be a great product, man. It was, yeah, Doug Duran's urine mixed with Dirt's chew spit, and it's like a deer. It'd be like the the world's greatest deer track. You can just call it rut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more quick thing. I did my correction. I talked about deer licking up dip. Talked about fishers. I'm going to touch on New Zealand. Which is a kind of baffling situation. And and no one here is going to have an expert opinion on that. And another thing, guy was talking about uh, Seth, right? You were just sharing with us recently about shot gobbling turkeys by throwing rocks at stop signs. Yep. Okay, guy hunts in upstate New York, and he says the most beautiful shot gobbling that occurs is that he hunts by a lake that has a lot of loons. Oh. And in the spring, 
the loon, a loon will light up and it'll shot gobble turkeys. That's one I have not heard before. Yep. Add it to the list. Who can do a loon call? That's tough. That was pretty good. Not bad. Not uh, bad. Okay, New Zealand. Now this is this is just telling. I'll just tell this. I can't put any. There's nothing I can do here for you. I'm providing nothing but just telling about. This is outside of my area of expertise. I'm, I'm deeply American, but um, just as like game management in Africa baffles me, game management in New Zealand baffles me. But there's a debate going on where, like in New Zealand, um, the the sort of radical left of the environmental movement is very anti-game animals because there's no game animals native to New Zealand. They had those big 500-pound birds, but they killed them all prior. prior I think they were Moas. Yeah, but I think they were extinct prior to Colonialism. European contact, like the indigenous people, I think, once it was settled by you know what became the indigenous population, those birds were wiped out. But when when Europeans started showing up, they started trucking over all the game animals they were familiar with from Europe and also Asia, and even some from North America because they put some elk here and there. But uh, and they brought tar over Himalayan tar and cut them loose in New Zealand, and they occupy the alpine areas of New Zealand and apparently cause some amount of damage to native flora. So. The hunters want all the game animals. They like to hunt for them. And the left side of the environmental spectrum would like to see them eradicated. And right now, there was like some really aggressive coal was proposed. And typically, when they go in coal tar in New Zealand, so the government shoots them out of helicopters. The reason you see so much crazy stuff happen in New Zealand that would never go on here, like you know, landing helicopters next to animals and killing them and having year-round hunting with no bag limits. It's all because it's non-native. It's all non-native wildlife that isn't particularly welcome in a lot of places. But when they when the government guys are up shooting them out of helicopters, a lot of times they'll just shoot the females and they'll leave bulls so guys can go hunt them. But someone came up with this really aggressive coal plan, which would have, you know, I guess once and for all put the finishing touches on a number of these populations of tar. And the hunters got all mad. We had a lot of hunters from New Zealand writing into us saying, hey, man, you should speak up on this. But I can't really speak up on it with real authority because I don't really understand. But I know that when I'm, like, oftentimes you'll see hunters in New Zealand and Australia kind of be like, hey, hunting here is good or hunting here is okay because it's all non-natives anyways and we got to get rid of the non-natives. So it puts you in a weird situation if you've been articulating that perspective. And all of a sudden, now you're like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't kill them all, right? It's a weird situation. What was the aggressive plan the, like, liberal left or whatnot came up with? Oh, it was killing hundreds of thousands of tar and shooting all the bulls. Yeah. And you have to assume there's probably, like, flavored with a little bit of anti-hunting sentiment. The way it's presented to me. Because they used to leave bulls around because without females, they're not doing a lot to explode the population. And then hunters could go hunt the bulls. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. Get the hides, eat the meat. I hunted tar in New Zealand. This is probably one of the more dangerous hunts I've ever been on. What's your take on it, man? The, my take is I remember visiting. Do you mind uh, introducing yourself? Oh, this is Eduardo Garcia, everybody. Thanks for being here. 
Good um, morning. Yeah. So having never been to New Zealand, um, I still think that anybody who lives on this earth can have some type of perspective and, and it's just based on where you've been in life. So my perspective on the non-native species goes back to a trip I took in my early twenties when I was working as a yacht chef. So, um, we were on a boat out of San Diego and we went to an island called Guadalupe Island, which is southwest of San Diego in the Pacific Ocean. And it's a, it's not a huge island, but let's call it 15 miles in length and maybe four miles in its most widest part. And it just comes straight up out of the Pacific. So super deep blue water right offshore. Uh, we were going there to fish for tuna and to, um, uh, check out the great whites that literally just troll the perimeter. It's part of a, a triangle of migration between San Francisco, Guadalupe, and Hawaii for great whites in Pacific. And what are the great whites feeding on? They're feeding on seals. They're feeding on seals. So yeah, it's a pretty sketchy kayak ride into shore. They're feeding on seals. They're, uh, and then, and then <laughs> if you're fishing like we were, you know, you're ending up with tons of, uh, carcasses. And so a good time is to just wrap a line on a yellow tail, uh, tuna or yellowfin tuna's tail and and you'll have 18 footers 15 footers just cruising oh like after you after you cut the meat out just hand the yeah carcass. yeah you'll have a cooler and you just put open the the drain a little bit and have a carcass in there and just be dribbling blood into your you know behind when that you're, when you're swinging on anchor oh yeah. yeah um so that's what we're there for you know with with the boss fishing and uh but when when we also went hiking on the island and this island was mostly denuded it, there was very little trees. There was very little um, flora and fauna, and and there was skulls and live goats, so dead and live uh, domestic goats all over the island. And what I learned was that um, whalers back in time time of yore uh, had dropped these goats off on their way out to the like Easter Islands and explorations of the Pacific, and they used a few of these islands, not just Guadalupe, but Cedros Islands and islands off of Baja as these um, nurseries for food on the return trip. They would be returning lean, and then they would be able to harvest these goats that had just been living happy and fat on this island, right? But the population exploded, and they literally ate everything on the island to the point where the Mexican government came in and culled most of these goats back. Got you. But like the uh, red-breasted robin, or I think it's even there's an indigenous bird to that zone called the Guadalupe robin, similar to our American red-breasted robin that almost went extinct. And and so that my take on it is that like a place was built to be a certain way, and as soon as soon as we start screwing with Mother Nature, we're done. Like there is absolutely no way to catch back up. In what I've seen. Let me give you a two-point counter. Yeah. Um, in the case of New Zealand, so many of the things that were like, so many of the native species were eradicated, you know, well, driven to extinction or extirpated. Yeah. So you've already kind of got, I think that that sort of provided a motivation to repopulate it. Right. So there's that. And that, I'm not saying that's the final word on it, but you have to like imagine, Right, it's not like you're like supplementing an existing thing. You kind of have this pl- the, 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 like people went to this place where you expect like a large landmass to have large mammals, right? And even though there weren't large mammals there, there was these like large birds there, and so people probably felt an absence. Sure, you know. Um, so there's that. A quick note on the how the whalers used to stock islands all over. Yeah, did you hear about the whalers that used to go and get uh 
they'd stop by and get giant tortoises in a variety of places like you mm. know, everywhere even people would stop into the seychelles later and get giant tortoises off there and they'd go to other areas and get them if they liked them because you could flip them over yeah put them in the hold of the boat flipped over and they would stay alive for months <sighs> jeez you want to talk about humane slaughter practices oh my god the, the second counter is this and this is an interesting perspective on non-natives where the hawaiian islands weren't colonized until around 1100 years ago so seafaring polynesians Mm -hmm. discovered kind of in a truer sense of the word being like the first people to discover discovered the hawaiian islands 1100 years ago and they introduced and that they they quickly introduced uh dogs rats probably accidentally pigs okay in a wide array of edible fruits so like hawaii didn't have mango and papaya and pineapple Mm. and breadfruit this is all stuff that was cultivated sure so i was hunting in molokai with some native hawaiians and the nature conservancy was had recently bought up some large properties and the nature conservancy was pushing an idea that they wanted to eradicate the wild pigs off of the land because they wanted to do a non-native eradication. The, the Hawaiians articulated a perspective to me that we're indigenous people. We're native people. We've been here for however long we've been here. The entire time that we've been here, we've been here with pigs. How can I be native, but the pig be non-native? And they said, if we really wanted to get serious about eradicating non-natives, I would be looking toward you folks <laughs> <laughs> rather than these pigs. So the point being, I think people get pretty used to, like people get pretty used to having the animals around that they have. And to these boys in New Zealand who've been writing in, it's a really insulting idea that you would that you would wipe out their resource i get but again it. man i don't really know i don't really know the answer it's like texas you want to introduce yourself hey i'm danielle pruitt okay texas yeah i live in texas and it's sort of the same thing there a lot of non-natives you want to eradicate some of that but then again you have all these outfitters that profit off of it so it's like that constant a battle between the two ideas of what do you do with this problem we have and then the people who are banking in on it cashing in actually raise like keeping and trapping pigs and letting them go yeah it's it's, it's a catch-22 for sure and yeah the pigs <clears throat> they get a bad rap because they you know they're they can be destructive right but it's really it is different in this way than a rainbow trout and a brown trout because i don't know there is some competition in the native rivers right with with the native fish yeah but but it's generally not like brown trout generally aren't causing trouble no not that we know of i think that they're they they know that there is some competition in our rivers with native fish and the introduced trout right but yeah, it's if not you all of a sudden made a campaign to call out all rainbow and brown trout out of the Rocky Mountain states, 
Get a little pushback. But you know what? The, I would be in a position I, to be consistent. If someone proposed that, to be consistent, I don't know, man. I was gonna say to be consistent, I would support it. Just to be, just to be, just to have, just to be able to be to have the clarity. But you see, that my point, the one of the things that I believe is that there, our moral and ethical compass needs to migrate and mature with. It needs to evolve with everything else, and and just because. It it's it's kind of an easy thing for us to say, yeah, like let's bring it back to its like original holistic way. I I I I struggle to believe that that is absolute a, a, actually attainable in some scenarios. Sure, I don't believe currently. it is at all. It, there you go. And so what it means though is that we have to shift. Like it's a paradigm shift that needs to happen. We need to shift our perspective as to okay, well, what is the new normal? And you know, some of these things are here to stay. You know, how do we do, how, how, what is, how do we continue to, uh, be stewards? Well, getting the fuck out of the way and just let mother nature like call also and figure it out. You know, like a friend was talking to me about mountain lion hunting here in Montana last week. And he was saying, you know what I want to do? He said, uh, he said, I think we need to shoot, um, female mountain lions. Right. For what purpose? Um, to in his mind, it's part of um, game management. Is is predators. Like he wants to see fewer lions. He's watching all the. the I'm, so I'm living in Southwest Montana, where the predator population is robust and growing. Yeah, right. Grizzly bears, wolves, uh, mountain lions, you name it. That being not even a debatable point. No, I want to clarify for people. Yeah. This isn't like a debatable. It's just point. by the numbers. Yeah, you know, and and so his point is like, hey, we need to. And he was just talking about mountain lions, and I'm just sharing a conversation that happened sure, man, that yeah. he uh he's like you know what my point of view is uh is i i want to i want to harvest uh female mountain lions um eliminates the next generation just right off the bat and if we have a few more toms out there the toms naturally will be culling their own kin to keep their own population down that's what mother nature has instilled in them to do you know and, yeah, they uh, practice fratricide. There you go. Yeah. And so he's in his way, he was just saying, like, I'm going to mediate a little bit just to l- kind of let Mother Nature take back over a little bit. Yeah. Which was interesting. I didn't have much to debate there. I was just listening to him saying, yeah, all right, I hear you. You know, are you going to eat it? <laughs> was my next question. Are you going to eat it? And he's one of those. He's a little on the fence with, you know, the things he does and doesn't eat from the wild. But um, I was like, well, fuck it. Give it to me. I'll eat it, you know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Man. I've heard. I've heard it tastes like pig. No, I like it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. None of this is what we're supposed to be talking about. Is everybody cool on the things we brought well, up so far? Oh, no, that was the perfect segue. I can't believe that. Oh, did you I miss a good that. segue? Yeah. Yeah. Eduardo just served it up, man. <laughs> Do you mind taking it and running since I missed it? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of eating mountain lions. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, because I wanted to segue into the tongue. To tongue. Oh. So I gotta go okay. back. I gotta go here here, check out this one. Here's the segue for you. Uh, hey, remember when I was talking earlier about 1996? Mm-hmm. The right? tongue? Yeah. Well, here's why. That was when I... No, wasn't 96. We cooked tongue in 94. First time. 1994. Um, I had moved away from home and was living with my brother, Danny, 
and our buddies Brian and Matt Drost, and we lived in a house. I remember my rent was one hundred and ten dollars a month. Um, but also a part of the house was actually falling away from the other part of the house. <laughs> Where you sacrifices like could, man. you could run an extension cord from inside to out without opening a door or window <laughs> <laughs> honestly and like i remember the shower leaked so bad and the landlord wouldn't come over there that we went and bought a gallon of roofing tar and roofing tarred our shower and roofing tar takes forever to dry in a shower so you know when you set your like you set your shampoo bottle down it'd get like roofing tar on it so the, the, every ledge is, has a roofing tar ring on it because it just took months for that roofing tar to set up. That kind of place. And we were eating a lot of deer meat, and we were eating every part of it. We were just eating everything we could get our hands on. We Dirt ate bagging. Yeah, we ate four deer between the opening of bow season, October 1st. We ate four deer between the opening of bow season and the beginning of Christmas break, which started like December 10. And we always knew that people could eat tongues. I was telling Danielle about this yesterday. And we would, uh, we just took, I remember one night we were partying and took a deer tongue and just boiled a pot for a long time and just didn't like, couldn't get it figured out. I didn't know about the skin thing. <laughs> right? Did you guys get that? Yeah. And we kind of decided, we sort of put it on, put that whole idea on ice for a long time. But I'll point out that it also took us many years to figure out what was up with beaver tails. Hmm. That it took a long time to be like, oh, so that's what they're talking about when they talk about beaver tails. It's all fat inside? Mm-hmm. It's like steak gristle inside there. I wonder if you could just render that somehow. And see oh, yeah. Trying to you could render it. Gnaw on it. Eat you it. could render it out for sure. Um, so there's that. So, D Danielle, talk about how you cook up deer tongue. And then I want to have uh, – uh, then I want Eduardo to talk about tongue. Well, we were talking about about this yesterday – and for people who who look at it as this terrifying alien looking thing, imagine that it's sort of like a little pot roast that is enclosed in a hard rubber case. So all you'd have to do, no matter pretty much I think any tongue recipe is always started the same way. Boiling, braising, and some sort of liquid to tenderize cook the meat on the inside and you're also separating the skin from the meat and then when you plunge it in that ice bath that cold water shocks meat it contracts and then you have a little bit of separation to help you peel it and from that point you you have like endless options it's like a piece of meat um i was thinking about doing some sort of pot roast cut it into big hunks add it to carrots potatoes whatever some stock and what just put it back in the oven for a while until all the vegetables are cooked, and it's it's like a pot roast. But I think but there's a lot of things you can do. You haven't tried that yet? I have not tried that yet. I have I a lot to, of ideas. I used to always tell people that it wasn't worth messing with any tongue up until you got into, like, elk. Mm -hmm. But I now realize that that's, like, not at all correct. Yeah. Because that deer tongue we did yesterday, just a regular old deer tongue. Makes a lot of... Yeah. It makes a really... Like a, mm -hmm. like a, definitely like a meal for someone or an appetizer for six to yeah. eight people. Yeah. And I think that's the nice thing about if you've got one tongue and you want to have people over, have a dinner party and really share something different that most people have never experienced, having that sliced up 
and seared. I think whatever you do after you cook, after you braise it, having some sort of hard sear after either on a grill or in a hot saute pan adds a, a lot of, helps enhance that texture a little bit. Some coloration is really big, but cuz it can get kind of a weird look to them. Yeah, it's like that grayish color and to me that's sort of the first thing I see. I I say it all the time, you eat with your eyes first. You see a meal if it looks like shit, you've got it in your head that you're not going to like it. So, I always find some way to add some sort of coloration to to that meat. So Have you ever just cured them? No, I haven't. Cuz when I first started getting uh better at preparing them, it was because I hung out with a buddy of mine who's a chef and had like an actual restaurant, mm-hmm. and he used to do a lot of uh, he used to do a lot of tongue dishes in his restaurant. He was Jewish, so he's got you know like a just like we we're discussing this as well, like, yeah. Like Hispanic culture, Basque culture, you know, there's a bunch of cultures around the world that like utilize tongue and have like tongue traditions. But then Jewish delis, it's a it's a Mm-hmm. very common dish in like large eastern cities yeah, and Jewish delis have tongue sandwich so he he came from it from that perspective but was also very big into charcuterie mm-hmm. he would do he would take like a dozen veal tongues and do them all at once and he would put them in a dry brine skin on and cure them mm-hmm. with pink salt mm-hmm. so then when you then you braise them pull the skin then he'd smoke them Mm-hmm. But it would be that pink salt would turn it like a beautiful, beautiful red. Didn't you do that on a? Yeah, yeah. I've done that. Yeah, lots. Of times. I remember seeing that. Yeah. So that's how he would conquer the color problem, and it would also make it that when, you know, I, I think you should all do first is just like really quickly walk through the steps of like just how you cooked the, how you cooked the deer tongue yesterday. Uh, yesterday's, so we braised it. You braised it in a little pot. Probably three hours. Uh, that was that wasn't just water. Did you add stock? So okay, it was stock. So I like to think that whatever you're braising it in imparts some flavor. So some sort of flavor. I would have just done water because I don't think it really matters. Probably. I don't. But know I did if it stock because I didn't want you to look down on me. Well, <laughs> and I told you I never ever ever tell anybody to use like a. A bouillon cube. I really just I hate those. Well, I thought that you, might I thought be you the s- only time I would ever do that is because I have not yet tested side by side braised in water, braised in stock. If that meat, peel it, and you were to take a slice right then, mm. I ha- I haven't tested that yet. Blind testing. Yeah, yeah. because it- I don't know how much you can actually penetrate and like flavor the meat the way you normally would flavor meat in stock with the. That shell over. Yeah, but I knew you were going to season it, and I knew you were going to make an uh, 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 you were going to make an accompaniment. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think if you're like, yeah, if you were just going to be like, no, I'm just going to boil it, like in the old days, like they used to do out on the Great Plains, yeah. shoot a buffalo, cut its tongue out, boil it, slice it up, eat it. Then I would want to boil it in the salted stock. Right. Right. But since you're going to do all that other junk. I would have just done it water, but I didn't want you to come over to my house and think that I was a <laughs> shitty cook. So I put stock in there. I Just told you not reason. to use your good stock, though. Yeah. I did say that. Um, yeah, and I think you so you can braise it stovetop, put a lid on it low. Uh, pressure cookers are awesome tools to use if you're. But man, you gotta be careful with pressure cookers. What do you mean? Because you can't monitor it. So I 
I am a fan of manual pressure cookers oh, and the newer oh, ones. Oh, oh, oh. You're, what you're supposed to be doing, if I would allow I'm you to do sorry, it. I'm sorry, am I off like, track? Ma- yeah, just march us through like bam, okay. bam, 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 what well, you did yesterday. Okay, okay. So we braised the tongue until it was tender. And you could tell we stuck a fork, like one of the spokes of the fork, and you could tell that you could just sort of slide it under the skin, and you knew the meat was tender after about three and a half hours. So we pulled it out, gave it an ice bath, peeled it, which took a little bit of time. And yeah, you're kind of peeling and kind of using a paring knife. Yeah, so you don't want to cut through the meat. And so I used a paring knife, I think a super sharp fillet knife that's really thin and flexible would also help just to sort of kind of like you're uh, getting silver skin who, who, off. Who sharpened that knife? You sharpened it. Oh, that's right. It's very sharp. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, because it, it always seems like with those tongs, man, you get like half of it that just comes right off, and then the other there's just there's different yeah. uh, like binding materials between the skin and the meat in different locations on that tongue. And there's there's definitely Wait, can, you, uh, can I can I butt in for a minute? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Rich Pounder, you cool? I yeah, do, you haven't said a thing all day. I, well, I got a question. I do because okay. she's marching through the steps. I know. And oh, I, great I did, timing. I do have a question. I'm glad you asked because I was trying to find my moment, but um. Is it safe to say that, like, for the domestic chef and, like, people cooking at home, that if you get a tongue, like, the best thing to do is to just baseline, just braise it first, and then get yes. creative? You have to do... I wouldn't worry about dry brining it ahead of time and all that. If you're just going to do... If you just want to be like, what's this all about? If you want to be, what's this about? I would make the thing that she's talking about. Yeah. That was really good. Because my the, the chef buddy that does the dry brine... The peel, the smoking, that's some labor-intensive shit. Yeah. But the thing is, he's doing a dozen of them. And these are beef tongues. They're bigger. So he's doing like, he's the making R- a day out of it. You yeah. know what I mean? The ROI is really there. The re- return <laughs> on investment. Yeah. Where, are people, where are people finding the Daniel's recipe? Oh. Good question. We're going to put it out in a video. Oh, nice. Cool. I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Go on. March through. You good, Chris? Yeah. But so if you got a tongue, like say you shot your first deer, you cut the tongue out. You're like, oh, I'm going to do something with this. You don't want to stick it in the oven. You don't want to put it in a slow cooker. You want to braise it first, right? Well, a slow cooker would work fine. Yeah. It would? Same but thing. It would do the same thing. Same thing. Okay. Co- cover it in liquid. Cover it in liquid. You good, Seth? You ever cook a tongue? I have not, but I, I do have some in the freezer. Oh, good. And it's like, I look at them, and it's like, man, I don't, I don't know what to do with that thing. Oh, hang on. They last forever. They do. That was my question. How long they last in the freezer? You got that protective sheath on them. Just, yeah. All humans will be dead as long as there's a freezer running somewhere. <laughs> the, t- the tongue will be fine, man. Some future species will cook that tongue up. Uh, okay. March is through. Okay. So, yeah. I start every process with the same, braising it, and then peel it. So, it's it's a lot easier to peel if if you've... If you've cooked it first, and then being super patient, you don't want to try to cut the meat and this. You don't want to like cut the meat thinking you're just going to peel it that way. You want to like sort of wiggle that knife in between. I think the same way you sort of start getting silver skin off of meat, and then use your fingers and you can start to peel. Sometimes it doesn't work so easily, and then you just have to be patient. But so once I got it peeled, then I. And the skin is like. Don't worry. The skin is extremely obvious. There's no question about what it is you're trying to get off. Yeah, you're not like, is that meat? Is that skin? It's like, that's, you just, that's, it's also bumpy. 
tarred. It's gross. So do you, do you peel it because of like it's just tougher than hell? Oh yeah, or, you know, I mean it's, or it's like just eating of the plastic. Texture. I would imagine. I, I don't oh, okay. know what or rubber. Yeah, you can I, try I, it. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> we could have given you a whole handful of it yesterday. <laughs> Make a little skin. I didn't, I didn't know you were curious about. This I didn't. I don't know if it was skin. if it was just like an appearance texture thing. That or? I I think the texture matters. So, so like at the very bit back of the tongue, there's like always that that hump. I don't know the correct term for that, but there's always once you peel like those big taste buds off, there's still like some raised bumps. So I'm that. Textural things like that really bother me, so I take that paring knife and shave it, kind of like you'd shave your face, so it's smooth, so you don't have any like bumpy textures. You shave your face. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Set them up too easy for that, man. <laughs> if I had ever shaved my face, that's, that's exactly what I would imagine. With a pair, I should with rephrase that. <laughs> Speaking to a group of guys, yeah. saying. No, yeah, that's good. Yeah. No. She's being relatable. Yeah. Okay, so there you are. Tongue's all peeled up. You got the little bumpies. Yeah. You scrape the bumpies off. Yeah. And then slice it. If I could slice it as super, super thin, I I would have um, maybe wrapped it in plastic wrap, put it in the freezer, time willing, and that sort of hardens it up, and then you can really get nice thin slices. But when it's sort of just fresh out of that ice bath, it's still a really firm texture. It's still really easy to cut through. So I sliced into about quarter inch, eighth inch. No, man. Quarter inch? No, they're way thinner than quarter they inch. Were, they were thinner than that? That knife was sharp. <laughs> that knife was so sharp. Those are not quarter inch slices. They, they were about eighth inch. Three sixteenths? I don't think they were that thin. But I'll take well, it. Well, four sixteenths is a quarter inch. What do you oh, think, Yanni? You were there. Three sixteenths sounds good. Okay. Maybe even a hair less. Go ahead. Real so, thin. So then I made a nice little spice mix that had some smoked paprika in it. So a really nice bright red color. So once you mix that and uh, season the meat with that rub, then you finally got a little red color to that gray meat, which and is that made that shit come alive, you, man. And that's when you go from like this is tongue, this is meat. It's like kind of hopping that that bridge that people need mentally to get over from yeah, like once that color once that hit it was yeah it was it was ready it was yeah. it was looking good yeah so then the last step was hot saute pan a little bit of oil sear it on both sides and i always use a little uh, spatula to press it down because a lot of times meat uh, that pressure they like to sort of dome up and then the circle doesn't get seared only the ring on the outside edge so i just flatten it down one by one flip it over do it to the other side and you're done and it was no you drizzled it with something chimichurri this is a good High grade. This is advanced wild game cooking. That shit was good, <laughs> real good. It was it was really good, but it, it seems so simple, like advanced but simple. You yeah, know? Advanced I try to make it, it approachable so Adva- for people. Yeah. Like if you're at home, you're like you're not like looking at a hundred steps. It's like oh, it's that easy. Braise it, peel it, yeah. slice it, sear it. Ta-da! Chris, what made it um, advanced in your mind versus simple? What about the complete tongue recipe. I think the one, like knowing like what to do with like the presentation because of the gray color, like being like, oh, we need to add some spice to this 
one for flavor and two to make it like appetizing to look at and then two like knowing things like the doming and like flattening like that's a little more advanced like i wouldn't know how to do that but simple in the way that like i'm not a good cook but watching that watching you cook the whole thing it was like oh i could probably do that yeah if i had like a walkthrough yeah. You could set Chris's baseline by having you share your uh, famous gray rabbit recipe. Oh, and that would, that would give everybody a good <laughs> baseline of where Chris is coming from in his culinary experience. Yeah, I cooked some gray rabbit. It wasn't good. It was gray and, and, and species. <laughs> no, one really, no, no one really understands the story. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I don't really even understand so it. It's not just me? No. It was okay. a cottontail rabbit. It was a con- No, it was a, a swamp rabbit. Same as a cottontail? Yeah. What's the sil sil silvalagus aquaticus? It's a six pound. It's a it's a cottontail that grows to five six pounds. It was a big one. Sounds Swamp. like a nightmare. Yeah, dude. Yeah, but these are cool rabbits. Delicious. Man. The coolest thing about these rabbits, you know, a normal cottontail just shits wherever he pleases. A swamp rabbit has a log. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. They got like a defecation <laughs> log where they got a little spot where they presumably like they like to use it because they can get up and look around and get up out of the water when it's wet. These rabbits will swim away from you. They'll jump. They'll jump in the in the Mississippi or the Ohio and swim across the river. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. And they'll live cool. out in the marsh. Five My pound dog rabbits. Would love that rabbit. And they got a little <laughs> log where they like to go. It's like llamas. Llamas will have pick a spot and shit in a spot uh-huh. and make like a little hill. And then they'll actually climb up on the hill. Yeah. After many months of building it up, yeah. and use it as a place to get a look around. It's pretty smart. It's like a prairie dog. That's like the shit. ultimate, ultimate recycling of materials. They're like, not only is it food, but it's also function. Yes. <laughs> Closed loop, man. So they have a defecation log. And Chris took some. It's very good. It's very good to eat. And he took some, and he sucks at cooking. Not sucks at cooking. sucks at cooking game. Like, by your admission. I'd say sucks at cooking. Okay. Flat out sucks at cooking. Yeah. The game doesn't help because it just adds like another level of like, Carefulness. Tried, tried yeah. to prepare the rabbit for a lady who he was, you know, trying to impress. It came out gray. No one was happy. He felt that he'd <laughs> set he'd set everything back. Tell us the recipe, the procedure. I forgot. I think it was a recipe in one of the in the small game book. Don't you dare! <laughs> <laughs> but here's where I messed up. Here's where I messed up. I think. Come on. I think the taste wasn't wasn't bad. It was just the color. And I think the issue was like, I just didn't brown it enough before. Because I think it calls for browning and then you bake it. Mm. Right? Maybe. But, anyways, the browning, it, that's, I think that was my fatal misstep. Was like, mm-hmm. I was like, I was just worried about burning it the whole time. And that's the perfect segue because that's exactly what Danielle was just talking about was like making food appetizing to the eyes first. Yeah. And you, you didn't pull that That was off. rule number one. And then nobody was like... Mm. I wish I would have been there for this meal, man. Would have been, yeah. A fly on the wall or more like Steve or more like Chris's chef that was there to no, like no, 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 help no. Fly, fly on the wall, fly on the wall. Uh, moving on. You good? We don't, you do, like we beat you up about this a bunch of times. <laughs> like, because we don't know what happened. The reason I'm moving on is there's no lesson. There's no, no, there's no lesson. Like, if I was there, if someone would have been there, I would have said, like, that's actually looks great. There's not a problem. Yeah. Or whatever. Did it look bad or did it also taste bad? No, it tasted. I mean, it wasn't like probably amazing, but it was, it was edible for sure. Flavor was good. Flavor was there. Did it, was it tender? It was a little. It was. It was not as tender as I'd hoped. It could have gone for another thirty minutes. Yeah, 
the tenderness was yeah that was a little bit of an issue and then the gray the color was the worst part <laughs> that was eduardo do you mind um can you jump in and give some perspective on tongue because i'm guessing yeah. that you didn't discover tongue when you were 20 um well i no, i i actually discovered tongue when i was 18 oh yeah not uh only because uh, i was in culinary school so oh, that's how you found out about it yeah so, so it wasn't from like like it wasn't like a family thing from having family uh, from Mexico. Well, it could Is have it been the wrong part of Mexico. No, no, no. You're 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 right on many levels, except for um, my. Um, it could have had tongue really from my my mom's side, which is Russian Jewish from the East Coast, New Yorker. So that easily could have brought tongue into our life, but and from my dad's the Latino edge. But um, no, I was raised sort of in a uh, in sort of more of a uh, natural culture i was raised on like tofu and miso soup and not a lot of game not a lot of wild um not a lot of proteins really? uh, like okay. meat-based proteins yeah more vegetarian macrobiotic cooking which is whole whole plant cooking what about fish um fish was expensive so trout yeah if the twin and i twin bro and i caught trout we'd eat trout gotcha um and i guess when i was like in my teens we started hunting so we were like mom we're eating game Dunk, you know brought like a deer leg home yeah. Um, but so tongue for me, cooking school um, was the intro to methodology, and through methodology, um, when, and when we talk about cooking, methodology required a diverse range of of muscle cuts that n- require different cooking methods in order to have a tender brown, not gray rabbit, etc. You know. So my take on tongue was that was my first experience it, and then traveling through. Traveling around the world, you see it on all kinds of menus. It's really the U.S. has one of the most limited animal-based protein availability kind of, you know, like available options out there. You go to Europe and they're eating turkey every single day, not just on Thanksgiving. Well, that's our holiday, but, you know, not just in the fall. Yeah. So uh, I, I've seen and cooked tongue a, a, a bit. Um, and and I, you know, I think it's, it's, it, it is interesting, especially, um, I mean, heck, you have a, I think you have a recipe out there for like duck tongues. Have you cooked duck tongues before? No, not me. Really? So people do. People are cooking duck tongues. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a bite. You know, I've been, I've been served it, but I haven't mm-hmm. prepared it. Yeah. So tongue, this is how, uh, so here's my thing. On Hold tongue. on. I can't let duck tongues go. Like for real? It's like a crispy duck tongue. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. It's like a, a popular in Asian cultures, right? It's more like wok fried and then tossed yeah. in a sauce kind of a thing. So imagine eating like a popcorn shrimp, maybe not as tender, but there's going to be a little chew in there. Are they peeling those too? <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-mm. I haven't prepared them. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to yeah. be trying it. That well, duck hunting season's coming up, so I'll sign up right now for that trip. That'll <laughs> yeah, be fun. Man. Um, we'll eat, we'll discard yeah, like, um, the rest of the carcass and well, just pull a bunch of duck tongues. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a handful. Like there's a handful. That I'm always. I got like a running list of shit I want to mess with that I haven't messed with yet. And so, you know, uh, have you ever been to like a dim sum place and eaten the the you know, the, nope. the, the gelled chicken feet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, I haven't. You know, I want to get around to replicating that with turkey feet, well, grouse yeah. feet. Feet are great. So feet. We're bouncing around a little bit, but the uh, best foot rest, ch- chicken foot recipe I ever had was made by a Jamaican lady, and she would use the feet. It's what I do now. I make all of my chicken stock out of chicken feet, so it's because it's loaded with all of the tendons. You raise up chickens, don't you? I raise chickens not enough to cull my butcher myself. I just buy pounds of frozen chicken feet from okay. a butcher or grocery store. And the reason I use those for chicken stock is because um, per you know like per square pound, I guess, or however you want to um, you know like equate that, a, a foot has the most connective tissue and ligaments and cartilage and joint matter, which is packed with collagen. And collagen, when cooked down, turns into gelatin, which creates your beautiful viscous broths and stocks that have mouthfeel and stuff. So. Pound for pound and pound and, and dollar for pound, it's like the most economical way to have the best tasting stocks out there is go for the shins, the hooves, the um, the feet, the tail, right? If you're hunting animal with tail. I know you're worried about how far off track you are, and I know where I know where you need to wind up. Yeah. Can I throw another thing in to ask you if you have any familiarity with sure. this? Sure. Um you're familiar with bird's nest soup? Yes. Okay, so there's a type of swallow, a cliff dwelling swallow. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the listener. There's a cliff-dwelling swallow that produces a, a spit 
that has a glue-like quality to it. And they take nesting materials, coat it with this spit, and then build their nest. And bird's nest soup, it's a thing that people do to, you basically take this thing and simmer it and extract that viscous liquid from it and it's used to make like a, 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 a somewhat viscous consomme. I took cliff swallows, you know, the mud ones, the mud nests that you see here under bridges and stuff. I took a bunch of those and bashed them up and boiled them for a long time and then let the dirt settle and strained it off and reduced that down. And I could never find what I was after. Like I, I could never get like that yeah. spit. Yeah. That viscous spit. Different type of swallow. Yeah. But go on. Um, tongues. So, yeah, tongues. What are we, we're talking about sort of what's my take or, or what's my, I, I think it's a muscle worth eating. I think it's, uh, I think it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. If you look at the commercial industry, um, you know, the, the commercial industry wastes very little because everything's got value to it. It's, well, you know, I messed, I messed you up. That's not where you were. Where was I? Feet. Oh, well, I, yeah, could you do I, it I think with, I, would a turkey foot work? For have, you stock? Done with, have you done with a wild turkey? No, I haven't. There's yeah, no reason. Yeah, I don't know why. Of course you could. I save my geese feet for a stock. You do? Yeah. Snow you got to clean it. Yeah, Canada's. Um, so their feet are pretty nasty. So I always wash them clean, potato scrubber, scrub them off, and then I blanch it in boiling water in case there's anything bacteria-wise on it because you don't want all that inside of your stock. So, yeah, I blanch them. Scrub them and then um, knife start to break them at the joints to sort of open them up, and then I throw them in the stock. No shit. Mm-hmm. There you go. Every almost every part of the animal, I mean, could be simmered down to a flavored broth. There's no reason why not to. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Okay, now I'll go uh, on tongues. Yeah. Um, yeah, for, so for tongue for me, it's, uh, I, I, I enjoy it a few different ways. Uh, the way Danielle's recipe shares, which is slow cooked until it's tender, peeled, and then, uh, browned off. Right. If it, do I have that right? And seasoned. Um, I like it that way. I also, uh, like it more as a deli meat as well. So slow cooked until tender, peeled, and then left whole. And, and so I'll, I'll cook a tongue peel it back and then once it's at that tender place i'll just refreeze it again and just label it cooked tongue and at that point it's ready for kind of a array of possibilities you could do you mess with deer tongues too or just bigger ones but i usually just mess with the bigger ones as of yet yeah. for i have a very limited time uh, in my day-to-day and and the roi comment earlier it's kind of bang for your buck like an elk tongue or a cow tongue um, just has more bang for your buck. I'll go down. They harvest bison on the park line here in southwest Montana as part of a uh, indigenous uh, hunting opportunity for native tribes from the Pacific Northwest to come in and hunt bison that are coming out of Yellowstone Park. And I'll often go down during that time of year and pick up heart and um, kidney and call fat and tongue if they don't want them because, I mean, that's major bang for your buck. That's a good idea. <laughs> Freaking huge. Well, you know. Um, but so so the, so I'll keep a cold a cooked tongue in the freezer, and at that point I'll thaw it out and slack it, and uh, and then just slice it. What slack it mean? Slack it means is, is a, a restaurant term when you pull something out of the freezer and let it thaw slowly. 
right? So you would pull something and put it on a tray and throw it in the fridge for a couple of days and let it slack or thaw out and gotcha. or put it on your counter. Um, I always felt like when you dump a frozen something because you're stressed and hustling, you don't have time and you dump it in warm water, you're, you're almost like stressing more water and moisture out of the meat and you end up, you end up with a lot more coming out of it than when you just let it naturally thaw mm-hmm. on its own at room temp. Um, but so when the tongue is then thawed, I'll just cut it like just quarter inch, just like you would a steak sandwich. And I'll throw it on a bagel with arugula or sprouts and onion and good mustard and mayo and what, and just make a sandwich out of it. Now really? it's a, now it's like a cold cut. Oh yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's interesting, right? So I have this thought a lot is that how often are folks eating meat without seasonings, without salt, without any herbs, without anything but the meat, just like, and you know, like that's what rabbit tastes like. That's what antelope tastes like. That's what rarely, rarely. Right. And so oftentimes we're, we're eating a combination of, it's like seeing something naked for the first time, you know, seeing to eat a meat, you know what I'm saying? It's oh, like, yeah. well, that's what you look like, you know, <laughs> but to eat something without any of the dressings and it's, it's a never, yeah, never. And you should do it. Cause then it starts the fundamental process of, of the education of, well, that's what it tastes like. Yeah. No, okay. That's smart, man. Now I'm going to start The baseline is a little bit of salt. Like if I really bad, like, like, what's this like? I put, I still put a little bit of salt on it, but you're right. You should strip it down. Well, boil pasta just for the easiest test. Just boil pasta in, in naked water and boil pasta in salted water. And you're, you're, it's not so much that you're tasting the salt. If it's, if it's salted appropriately, is salt dehydrates. So salt pulls out natural flavors in the form of dehydration. It's pulling out moisture from anything. You put salt on an apple, it's gonna, you're gonna see liquid come up and that's natural. That's the moisture that's within that organic matter, right? And so salting is kind of fundamental to pulling natural flavor out. You can oversalt, and that's a bad deal too. Um, so, so that's one way. I like to cold slice a, a tongue. And then another one that I want to mess with more is, um, is slow cooking it till it's tender and, um, and then slicing it and then frying it. So you're still trying to brown it, but I'll, I'll just I'll shallow fry it in a cast iron full of lard, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe dredge it a little bit too. So that, that's put uh, take that cold sliced tongue, season it with some salt and pepper, if you will, flour, and then fry it. And now all of a sudden you have this crispy little like chicken fried steak thing happening, and that's pretty sweet. Yeah, I want. I've been wanting to do the same thing because then it for me it reminds me of calamari almost. Yeah, yeah. That te- soft texture, crispy exter- exterior. Mm-hmm. Have you ever sous vide tongue? Uh, I haven't. I haven't mm-hmm. either. No, I'm, I'm currently I in a more personal, like, <laughs> personal, like, headbutting match within my own mind between sous vide versus no sous vide mm. and the love hate kind of going on. And, uh, explain that. Explain. Give me the, give me the argument f- uh, against each. Well, if anyone out there does or does not, if you do not know what sous vide cookery is, sous vide cookery is, is basically in French, I think it translates to cooked in vacuum. And it's basically your, taking anything, putting it in a plastic bag of some kind, moving all the air out. Ziploc, back seal bag. Exactly. And then uh, and then submerging that bag in water bath and using an immersion wand, a heated wand to then circulate and maintain a temperature of, of, of uh, within the water, which then brings that food that in the bag to that temperature and holds it at that temperature. Dude, a, you're doing a great job right now. I feel like we should just have you on hand. 
just, just from now on in to do an explanation of something. I didn't know what wall. sous vide was. That was super educational. Well, it's been around nice. since like the 70s. Yeah. And yet it's, it's just hip. like GPS. Cool, I right? always yeah. hear it. And then when people are like sous vide, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know mm-hmm. what you're talking I would, about. I always thought that was something like so new. Well, it, but it's new to us. So GPS is not new to the world. But it's so like so many things that require um, development and R&D, there's a ton of time and energy and money. It goes into that. So it's usually developed for the industry and then it comes down to the consumer. Yeah, I think it's already like when was the life cycle in like New York restaurants of sous vide? Well, they didn't, they didn't quit. It was, that was, it was, that's where it found its use. That's yeah. where it found its thing is you could, you could, if you're a caterer, say, or you're doing a wedding and you need to have at six o'clock, you're going to serve mm-hmm. 100 four ounce steaks. Mm. Okay. It would be that you could have this giant tank. With a circulator in there, and all those sons of bitch and steaks are in there at 130 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yes, but and they're just also, ready to go. And then you pull them out, put a sear on them, put a flame on them, and wham, 100 out the door at the same time. Or you could pre-prep all these entrees and have them all ready. And you and you start serving dinner at five, and you're serving dinner till one in the morning in a bistro, and all this shit is just like done. It's done. Order comes in, you grab the bag out, open the bag up, put a sear on it, it's fucking scallops, whatever, put a sear on them, out the door, and you're just basically grabbing sacks out of a hot tank of water, putting the finishing touches on it, dress the dish, go out the door. But wouldn't you agree also and that... And it's not like they quit doing that because it got hip. They're still doing it. Right, but I think that there was a hipness at, at one point to it where people were like, I am going to find a sous vide steak filet or whatever because sure. it is special when it was on the menu listed like yes exactly or right rather than being just some secret trick that would well, be off-putting to people everyone mm-hmm. remember when kale was all over the menu it's like not kale's not fucking new to anyone yeah because like someone started busting kale's balls because it's got like uh what's wrong with kale everybody got hip on kale and then it came out that everybody started busting balls on kale because kale has some problem so uh, there's no, I have no problem with kale. But when it comes to sous vide cookery, it was developed in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, went through the industrial use. And, and then just, uh, I think it hit the restaurant scene like in the late, later ni- like n- late, late 90s and then 2000s. And then consumers, I think I didn't start seeing uh, a purchasable. You go to Amazon and buy a wand, uh, which is what they're called. It's an immersion wand. and um, Yeah, and, like a Breville... Yeah. Rebel has a the jewel, the, yeah. the um, Anova. Anova, that's the one I have. And you can control them with an app on your phone. So it's just a continuation of these 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 tools like GPS and hunting now and, and Onyx on our phone and everything else. Like these things that enable us to just continue to be badass at what we want to do in, in our world. But my thing with sous vide is yes, you could take the toughest cut of meat. And I've been doing more and more of this where I will literally, so I, some people wrap in plastic wrap and then butcher paper. If you're butchering at home, I really stick to vacuum sealed, you know, almost everything. Um, I just feel that you get, you can freeze it for longer. And, and what I've started to do is I'll thaw the item in the bag and I'll go directly into the sous vide machine once it's thawed. So rather than, you can throw it in frozen, you can throw it in frozen, but you better account for that because it takes a lot longer. Um, but so here's the deal is that you can sous vide a tough cut, like we'll just call it an, a, like a deer shank and, um, 
and then pull it out uh, 20 hours later at 170 degrees and it's falling apart tender now. But there is no caramelization of sugars, which is when you have a steak or when you have a crispy fried egg or when you have a brulee creme brulee, the, 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 the cooking of sugar to the point where it's about to turn into candy or burn is caramelization. And it's a beautiful thing. Like it's, it's like frying that tongue meat that Danielle's talking about. And so what happens is, is when you're sous vide cooking, you're wet cooking and there's no, uh, there's no, none of the sugars are being developed to a point of caramel. And so you're just losing on a ton of flavor. And so the old school method, pre-sous vide, which is to make something, so you're trying to make something tender, is you're braising, which is you're browning it, and then you're putting it in a water or stock bath of some kind. You're putting it with liquid and aromatics like carrots and onions and garlic, and then you're slow cooking. So you're doing the same thing sous vide's doing, but you're browning it first. And all that browning is going into the braising liquid, which then can become a beautiful gravy or sauce, right? So that's where my love-hate comes in, is like with sous vide, it's, it's like you can put flavorings in the bag and then seal it up. And so it's, I, I love it, but at the same time, sometimes I don't want to let a shit, like I could cook a deer shank right now. What time is it? It's like 1030. I could cook a deer shank right now through traditional braising, brown it, liquid, in the oven, 280 degrees, six hours, and it will be ready for dinner at 6 p.m., like falling off the bone. And the gravy in that pan is ready to go. All I have to do is mash the potatoes, right? So I'll counter that by saying I'll sear it before, like a roast. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll sear it in a pan, Mm -hmm. put it in the bag. I'll put just a little bit of sock on the pan to sort of wipe up that fond, pour it in the bag. Mm -hmm. What's What's the word you just used? The fond. Never heard that word. You've got your own word. I noticed it on the the glossary term. Scraping, scraping. <laughs> fond, fond is another word for scrapings. Mm-hmm. Scrapings is. Another Have you heard word this word? Fond. Yeah, fond is the fancy culinary term. <laughs> mm. Dude, how do I not know so much stuff? Man? I don't know. You read Escoffier. You, you, you probably know how missed to it because you're deglaze the IPA. pan to get and, the fond yeah, to lift off. I get it. I get it. I just have never heard it described as fond. I'm it doesn't take the same route as fondue. <laughs> no. Obviously. No, so never heard the word I'll, fond. I'll At least do... I admit it. A lot of dudes sit here going like, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's right? okay. But I'm like, never heard that well, word. Well, through your admittance now, everyone knows what fond is. Yeah. yeah. So I'll do that. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of juices still extract from that meat, and you have like a little bit, maybe like half a cup of really nice juices in there. But I agree on something like a shank, you miss out on like really building a flavorful braise liquid. Yeah. So I, for something like Osobuco or anything like that, I'd probably always braise it. Versus sous Versus sous vide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, so, and really, okay, so I'm going to distill my love hate down just to make it really clear. It, it's a time thing. So the recipe that I've known to come by if I want meat to fall off the shank bone is roughly 20 hours at 170 degrees Fahrenheit. That's just what it takes. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. So you for gotta, sous vide or for, for su- trad? To sous vide. Sous vide okay. Whereas, and, and you just have to plan ahead. You just do, right? But I don't always have the luxury of planning ahead. So for me, six hours, old school style, in the oven, out of the oven, one pot, one pan, it's really just as simple. It just takes less time, mm-hmm. and you do end up with like a quart or a, a substantial amount of gravy that's pretty beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So they're both great techniques. Can I, can I throw – and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you another question. Let's go. 
I'll throw in one more thought in here. I think that when an argument in favor of doing, say, Asabuco sous vide is that you don't need to be there to monitor it. And the window Mm -hmm. of it being done is a much broader window. Right? Yeah. It's and it's like very safe to like leave your home, leave this thing in there. Yes. It, you'd be like, yeah, it'll be done maybe around six p.m. In this case, like six p.m. tomorrow. Yep. But you know, ten p.m. it'll be kind of the same way. So I would argue that, uh, and no, not argue. I'm just going to add to that. These are all great options for anybody listening to get into. Right? Um, is a crockpot. You know, crockpot's electrical. Exactly. It's super bomber and safe. It, it's no different than putting it in the oven. And in a way, Gentle. yeah, with the lid on it, it's self-basting, meaning you're evaporating the broth and up to the lid and it's falling back down onto the meat. And that's, I mean, people win, home cooks that are busier than I am win every day with a crock pot. Like, great yeah. invention, right? Somehow, though, I feel like if I do the same exact recipe, let's just say asabuco. Yeah. In a crock pot and then the Dutch oven with the lid in the oven, I feel like I get a different result. Right, better. You know worse. why that is? I'm, I I think the oven is a little bit better. It's, it's, and, you're right. It's better, and, and I think that it's somehow there's like a different kind of reduction going on. Like maybe the oh yeah, the lid, more. the way the lid you peeled off and you got like a something that tastes really good stuck to the lid of your Dutch oven. Yeah, out of your oven. I think, it and has, that shit isn't there on a crock pot. I think it has to do with it's dry heat versus wet heat. Yeah. When you're in a crock pot, it's a steam-based environment again. And when you're in an oven, the exterior of that crock pot is all dry heat. It, it's just, it's a different, it's, um, it's like, you know, being warmed by the sun being, versus being warmed by a sauna. So mm-hmm. just, it's different. I was going to say uh, wood fireplace versus sauna. <laughs> good, go. good analogy. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Then I'm going to ask Danielle another question. Here's my question for you. If you're living out of a freezer, like eating out of a freezer all the time, you were talking earlier about... Uh, Pulling like pulling the tongue out and letting it just go into the fridge and let it take its time. How do you like to thaw fish out of your freezer? Countertop, room temperature. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. What about you? I do that. I do in my fridge. I do in a vac bag in cold water, depending. I just didn't know if there's like, because you have a lot of like technical training. Yeah. And sort of like where you, where you have this, you know, you have like what works, but there's also like food safety issues and all that kind of shit from commercial kitchens. I don't know if you had a different perspective on thawing fish. If you had like never, you can't ever set it on your counter. No, you can. I, I mean, I the only thing I would say is size matters here. So if you are thawing out some huge piece of fish like large larger than a, a turkey you like know? the belly off a 60 pound flat 50 pound flathead okay well so the only caution here is that at that point i would thaw in the fridge and i would give it four days and and the only reason why is so it's a controlled environment where the extremities of that piece of meat are are never reaching an ambient room temp of 50 or 60 while the inside's still frozen and you're waiting for that to happen Whereas it's always going to be at the outside, 30-something or 40, 40, whatever your fridge is at, as it slacks. That's a good point. Because you pull like a, like a yeah. let's say you're thawing out a venison neck. Oh, it'll take forever. Some bitch is sitting on your counter. <laughs> it's sitting in like a pool of its own blood. Yeah. It's all just looks like all sad and warm. Then you get in there and it's still, you're like still icy in the middle. Fridge. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Okay. Nice. Um, do you guys want to talk about kidneys or hearts first? Game kidneys or game hearts first? I've actually never cooked a game kid. Well, any kidney. Really? Let's talk about game hearts. I haven't either. I'd like to, if anybody has some experience with You've probably had to have eaten it with me. I mean, maybe in a... Uh, Scrambles. No, I was going to say like in... Um, oh, shoot. Uh, What's it called? Giblets? Giblets. Giblets. Did yeah, I, I've made kidney pudding with elk kidney. Tastes like piss. <laughs> <laughs> I messed it up. I didn't do it right. But when I do kidneys, I just cube them up. I know you've had this with me. No. Did you do it on the Fognac elk? Kidney with the... Yeah, you ate kidney there. Yeah. Yeah, but that was like, was like amongst... amongst how, it's amongst a kidney. Liver. No, I know. But I'm saying like... Okay, sure. So yes, I have ingested it. But as we were eating, <laughs> as we were eating that dish... I wasn't like, oh, that's what kidney tastes like. Like very heavily seasoned with a bunch of other cuts in this. Okay, yeah. Do I walk around eating a kidney like an apple? No. (laughs) (laughs) What do I have you had it the way most people have it where you peel the skin. You're supposed to give it a good soak. Cube it up and put it in like an egg scramble. Put it in an organ scramble with Mo Fallon. With Mo Make the Camera Bleed Fallon, we even had <laughs> kidney, lung, heart. That was either pre Yanni. Were you working? Were you working for us when we filmed in New Zealand? Nope. Oh, all right. Were you working for us when we filmed up on the breaks? Nope. You weren't. I was part time, but I had other commitments that fall guiding, and so that was one of the trips that I you weren't full not, balls did yet. not go on. Okay, I, I, I've never uh, cooked game kidney, and I have a collection of them in the freezer right now that I've been wanting to do a steak and kidney pie, just pot pies, like a big Dutch oven pot pie. I think that'd be good. I think the thing with kidneys, if you look historically, it's um, it's organ meat, and it's one of those things that. It is protein. However, I'm certain they realize that it, you know, to just cook it medium rare and slice it like a steak is like, yeah, it tastes okay. Yeah. However, when it's dressed properly with a sauce and accompanying things, it's darn palatable. And um, and sometimes I think you know you can look historically at recipes and be like, oh, they've been doing that for a long time. That's why it succeeds. Yeah. So that I have an interest in doing kidney pie for sure. Kidney, in my opinion, kidney falls into the trifecta of wild game ingredients that need to come from young critters. Hmm. Like anybody who's ever had sweetbreads, anybody who's eaten sweetbreads in a restaurant, like a sweetbread is a thymus gland. It is delectable. It is phenomenal off veal. So like a six-month-old cow to get slaughtered. The thymus gland or the sweetbread is beautiful. As the animal gets older, it turns, it, the, the gland matures into this kind of waxy thing that no one eats. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember which Plains tribe, maybe it was the Blackfeet, had a belief that, um, or at least here's the way Euro Americans who spent time among them captured what they took to be their belief. I always want to clarify that nowadays. That at a time, buffalo 
hunted and ate humans. And then humans got the bow and turned the tides and began hunting buffalo and eating them. And that the thymus gland was a chunk of human meat still stuck in the buffalo's throat. Again, this is as explained by a, by a Euro-American traveler who traveled and hunted hmm. among them. So he could have got it all wrong. Yeah. But that was his take on what was going on. One missed word could have totally yeah. sent that so, story. The you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, because you hear a lot of stuff, and you're like, now that you understand kind of like who, how these things pass along, you realize that shit gets missed. But that was his take on it. Uh, however, it turns to wax later. Like, I've tried to pull thymus glands out of game animals, and it's just nothing like, you know, I've peeled sweetbreads out of veal. It's not, they're not the same. I think the other two components would be liver on old, like you take a liver out of a four-year-old whitetail, it is not the same thing at all Yeah, than a liver out of a fawn of the year. And kidneys don't improve with age. So the, the, I have, can I throw a question in on top of this? Yeah. Okay, age of what you're harvesting and eating. What's everyone's opinion on, on eating baby animals versus full-grown animals? I think that the big... I used to be like, you know, I, I, people used to say this all the time, like, oh, the big ones don't taste good. Dude, I'm telling you, there is nothing on this planet that is better than a big, big mule deer bucks that when you pull their hide, they got like an inch of fat on their back. Is that the the answer you're, you're getting, you're wanting to get out, or, you, or is it more of the... Uh, killing a young animal versus an old animal all of it i mean there's six of us here i mean so i'm with steve one of my favorite recipes that my dad used to make he would ask me to go harvest an old mule deer buck because he we knew it would have huge fat on it and he wanted that as part of the thickening agent for his sauce but some folks you know like maybe look at a spotted fawn and they're like i couldn't kill that you know, so oh, I just wonder no. what, it, you know, like anything across no, the board. No, I don't have any, I don't, uh, the, like the morality of it or the ethics of it or the aesthetics of it. I don't sure. give a shit either way. It, it doesn't matter to me at all. Yeah, it doesn't matter to me. I, I always grew up uh, as far as like eating old versus young. I always grew up with people like, I grew up with a lot of meat hunters. Um, and Pennsylvania were, meat hunters. Yeah. And I always, uh, they always said like, Old bucks are just nasty. Yeah, it's just Which, a, it's like a growing up, I had that in my head. But like, oh, people pound as, it in your head. Yeah, you shoot a little buck and be like, oh, that's a good eater. Yeah, but yeah. you know, as I've you know got more into like cooking my own shit, I've never noticed a difference. I mean, I, I've noticed like with mule deer, I don't know what the reasoning is, um, but like last year, um, I had four different mule deer in my freezer. And I made the mistake of not labeling which deer was <laughs> okay. what. And some of those deer, just tougher than hell, had like a like a real like irony taste hmm. to it. Okay. I don't know if it was because I handled it wrong. And then other deer were they were they crippled up, limping around for four days before you found them? No, no. Okay. Um, and other other mule deer were just phenomenal. Yeah. We did, not last year, two years ago, we did a Pepsi challenge. We had a year and a half old buck and probably what, a three-year-old buck? Maybe, yeah. Four. Three, four-year-old buck eating the bitch raw. 
So it's like back legs. Now, granted, one had been aged for a few days and one wasn't. Mm-hmm. So that's substantial. But it's substantial because one was literally in rigor mortis, that young buck. But however, really throws off the challenge. It throws off the challenge, but it also informs the challenge. Yes. Okay. Because everyone thought the big buck was better, just as eating it as carpaccio. So even though they weren't totally equal and it wouldn't hold up to scientific rigor, the test, it does say that handling, it suggests, it might suggest to one that handling actually trumps age of animal. Mm, sure. Here, I have a question. You cool with that, Giannis? Oh, I totally agree with that. Um, l- last year, one of the, like we always have a big deer camp every year. One of the, um, one of the deer that was shot was it was like neck shot, okay. dropped immediately, and we immediately went over there and started working on it. And like as we were cutting some of the muscle groups, they're like still twitching and stuff. Yeah, do you think that causes any problems as far as like taste toughness? Can't say. You you mean in in regards to not waiting until yeah like the, the nerves have kind of have run their settled, course yeah and- settled down. To cut it, I, I don't know. That's a people talk about that all the time, as if it's like life and death. Like don't don't mess with it until that time has passed. But think about how many people shoot a deer and the temperatures are in the seventies. You can't wait around. Yeah, it's imperative to get that cooled off as fast as possible. But there's like post processing things you can do, like a wet aging, a dry aging. Um, like you were saying, I think that trumps the, like the age of the animal, like how you take care of it in the field and at home is, makes a bigger difference than it does how old you shot, except when it comes to waterfowl. I think, I think waterfowl is totally different. I think a young bird is going to be insanely tender and an old bird is just not. Yes. Okay, we're getting a lot of ideas stacked on top of each other. Okay, sorry. No, 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 no. I want to get to this. And I want to, I was hoping to talk about hearts, but now we we'll get this more important stuff coming up. We're getting a lot of ideas stacked. I want to put two to bed. Get into the heart of it. Yeah. I'm gonna put two things to bed. One, when I was talking about thymus glands, kidneys, and livers, mm. it's better on young animals. And this is something that's always been widely accepted in yeah. cuisine is that those organs for whatever, like as they live out their life of filtering or the animal matures or something, they just change. The texture on them changes. The flavor on them changes. And it's to the point where in the commercial industry, it's a difference between going to market and going to a rendering plant. Not that they know everything and they get everything right, but these are like broadly accepted. In the red, in the horned and antlered game world, I think that there's a tremendous amount of mystery. I think that there's one huge variabilities between the animal's life histories. This is a point I make in our new wild game cookbook that we have coming out. It's like, not all things are equal. As far as, like, as far as you know, some buck coming at you through the woods, he might've spent three days hung up on a barbed wire fence with coyotes chewing on him. And then he finally gets himself off there. And then he comes through the woods and you shoot him. And that's his life history that you'll never know. And there's a, that makes a, Big difference. He might have been, he might have wintered in some shitty spot and been starving to death all winter. 
you just there's so much variability with the animals that you just don't know and you might get something that tastes off and blame yourself for it and puzzle over oh if i had not hung it for a day or had it hung it longer like you don't know the the beauty of not the beauty of something of the commercial meat processing industry is that they have got things standardized to a bizarre degree it's like you have an animal of a known lineage it's born it's fed a certain diet it hits 800 pounds it goes on to a a, a feed mixture of x percent corn and x percent this it's treated with this it gets to 1100 pounds it goes to slaughter they all line up the exact same thing happens to every one of them the exact same process time happens to every one of them they go into a cooler for just about the exact same time and it comes out and it's like they're stamping them out like a car factory. Mm-hmm. I was just about to and say that. it's like that. they know the variability shit, they kind of know. It's not like, you know, it's not like, hey, let's, let's let this one lay out in the sun for a while. Yeah. When you go to the store to buy beef, you know what you're getting and what it's going to taste like. There's like no question about that. When you're hunting, you have no idea what you're coming home no, with. No, what it's, what it's already been through. So I think that that's what leads to a lot of the mystery about Oh, this one time we had a whatever. I mean, my brother killed a bull elk one time. Nothing you did to that son of a bitch. It was hard to chew up. It was like any other elk. Bull elk, six-point bull coming across the mountain. Bam! Bull falls over dead. It's cold out. Do the same thing you do with every elk. You could never chew that son of a bitch. I don't know what happened to it. Um, not that that puts that thing to rest, because now we're entering into like really interesting territory where I think that like foul rabbits squirrels that's some age specific shit there hmm. i think if you kill a cottontail rabbit and you can tear its ear you can tear its ear like a piece of paper after it's dead that's a young rabbit it's just a different critter than an old rabbit mm-hmm. and a pheasant that's two three years old oh yeah ain't same thing mm-hmm. you can't just you can't just take that thing and and, and uh you, know, you can't just take that thing and throw it on a you grill. Can, when you're cleaning pheasant, you can tell the difference. Like a younger pheasant and an older pheasant, the way that meat comes off that bone is just totally different than like an old rooster. You're like, you're cutting it off off the breastplate. And a young one, you're like, this is kind of just peeled off. You're like, there's something wrong with that. It's just so tender. Yeah, and you could tell by, you can take the pheasant's wing, stretch the pheasant's wing off and see if all the primary feathers are the if all the primary feathers are the same length, it's an older bird, and I would braise that bird. Mm-hmm. I would slow cook that bird. If the primary feathers aren't, it's different. So, how many folks? We kind of get into Chris and Giannis still, though. And I mean, I'm just still curious about. You want to talk about that gray rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> like, like we're hunting. We're all hunters at this table, and we're you know, so hunting is these super conscious act of setting your sight literally and figuratively on a one thing and then harvesting it hopefully so like are you targeting age ever you know i mean it's like with birds that must be crazy challenging how the heck do you target a bird while it's flying i don't think you could yeah with any small game as long yeah. as it's not a hen well pheasant. <laughs> yeah i would say, i mean I, I think the only time i've done that is when i have a cow elk tag and i've yeah. gotten it onto a herd and you can see who's like big mama lead cow 
Yeah. My buddy Jimmy Miller calls her Jenny Long Muzzle. You know, she's, <laughs> she's got like a 20 inch muzzle on her. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, she's usually leading the pack. And then behind her, you've got like the mediums. And then hopefully there's some calves around, you know, because you really need to see all of the sizes yep. to, to, to make the call. Because oftentimes, like the cow I killed last year, she's by herself with a bull, young five point bull, two, three years old, you know? And uh, I'm like, oh, perfect size, medium cow. Oh, so that's what know? I was going to ask. You want the mediums. You don't want Jenny Long Nose. No. <laughs> What's her name? Jenny Long Muzzle. muzzle. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I shoot her, walk up to her, and by, you know, just a giant, you know. And she's been eaten, like, with the. Steve didn't think so. I served some when we were in Missouri. Dude, I boys. thought it was great. Everybody mm-hmm. thought it was like, I thought it was good. Best elk you've, been ever, bitch, but... you've been bitching about that elk all year. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the best thing I'd had in a long time. <laughs> She's just got just a little more al dente than uh, than maybe it. But then again, it, it could be like all these factors, right? Coincidence and this, that, and the other that we're just not. You don't know what happened. But anyway, no, that's the cow, only time. The thing, there's cows rated. running around out there. If you're in hunt season, there's cows running around out there that are eight months old, and there's cows running out there that are twenty years old. Yes. So, what about you, Chris? Well, I'm pretty spoiled i don't really have an opinion on it but i'm spoiled because like whenever i eat game meat it's always cooked by like everybody at this table and everybody at this table <laughs> side for me is a good cook so like whenever i'm eating i'm stoked on it you know so i don't i don't have enough experience in my own like culinary world to know like oh a young animal versus an older animal or so let me ask you a question outside like we'll go conventional for a second yeah if you're buying groceries, yep. are you buying mixed baby greens or whole heads of lettuce? Baby greens. Okay, there you go. So you like babies too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's so you'll so you're saying that you'll uh you'll select like let's say you're hunting deer and you got a a, a smorgasbord of them out in front of you. Yeah. You shoot for young? Uh I'll I'll do both. So I I try to pull um I try to pull tags for my area that um, if I can get some surplus tags or get a few B tags, um, I will, I'll try to go for a young, like let's call it max three-year-old male of any species because I think it has higher weight, you know, so I'm going to be bringing more meat to the freezer for home. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important and thing. And it's, yeah. it's probably the only sure way in the big game world that I know of to tell an age is a raghorn or a forked horn or something along, you know, like, you know by its antler size how old it is, whereas that cow at 300 yards, that cow elk, you really don't know if it's going to be Jenny the long muzzle or, you know, Jenny the short muzzle. And so I, I try to go with that in my A tag every year. And then with a B tag, I will, so that's my meat. That's bringing home some weight is like a fork torn or rag torn. And then with the B tag, I target, um, I use whitetail or mule deer doe tags. We don't get a lot where I'm at, but uh, whitetail, I'll target small, like first year, second year animals. And, and that specifically for whole leg cooking and, and just tender, tender meat and even the organ meats that are terrific. Um, when young so you're shooting for the freezer yeah and then it brings it to the next level where i'm like well how do i kill this if i do a heart shot it ruins a lot of good stuff in there if i do a like an upper base of the skull shot then it's less but you have a higher risk of missing so it's it's a combination of when i'm going for the younger animals the harvest it's i i don't know anyone else i hit that all the time i'm like all right 
I try to put myself in a place where I know that I can make a like upper neck shot and not lose a shoulder because it steps right when I shoot or that sucks for me when I end up losing a ton of meat through my tra- solution trauma. to that is uh copper bullets and just punch them in the shoulder. Yeah. Cause I feel like just like you just not you're not getting that crazy purple <laughs> trauma yeah. you from still conventional get, bullets. I'm with you. But you still get meat loss. Yeah, you know. And I've switched no. to co- I've switched Obviously to Obviously you can't get go without it, but uh I feel like you're still like it's still a shot where you can just drop them in their tracks mm-hmm. and but go over there and cut out, you know, a couple inches versus sometimes looking at like st- stuff that extends out like a foot on either side of, yeah. of the bullet hole. But Eduardo, you still shoot big, huge, giant bulls. Maybe three in my life. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And you don't think of those as being fundamentally different, right? Uh, they're no, different, but you don't you don't look down on them. Meat tastes great, everything else, but I you know I know that with like a two year old bull, that uh, loin or backstrap is just totally different than right? a six-year-old bull yeah i think so six-year-old bull backstrap the way i like to cook it is uh i'm tenderizing the heck out of it with like the heel of a knife or a fork or whatnot almost like um what do they call that like a, a swiss steak or something or they're kind of breaking all that connective yeah. tissue with like a, a cutter or something or a pounder so so let me ask you this and you got to be you got to be honest in your answer okay you, you've you've gotten some big smoker bulls Mm-hmm. But you're saying like generally, if you had a big tanker, not let's not say like a big tanker where you're like, holy shit, I'll never see one like that again the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But like a nice six mm-hmm. and a raghorn, typically you're saying you would shoot the raghorn. Yeah, unless it's like over 370. Unless it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Totally. I'd rather pick up their sheds. And you got a pile of them. I'd rather pick up their sheds because then you can like it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, yeah. I've I've, I've shed a tear before when uh, uh, like we did not that I would have said no, but my um uh, my brother in law shot a bull, and I you know I was like I I recognize that like something in me at however many hundred yards we were away recognized that bull somehow like the face and and then the colorings and. And not and maybe even the antlers a little bit, and then when we walked up to it, it was like I was the first one there, and I just without without even a shadow of a doubt, I was like, I know that bull, I have his sheds. I was like, oh fuck, never gonna get you know pick up those sheds again. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, uh, I my joy with antler hunting, big antler hunting, I love getting first time like people, folks that are have never um, you know gone out and got a king of the woods you know, to put on their wall or whatever they want. I'm all about that. It's a beautiful thing. And I love taking folks out for that. Um, yeah, big time. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love mint straight and wintergreen all proudly made right here in the usa tell them chili the reason i like black buffalo pouches is one they're very discreet and what i mean by that is i can throw one in and almost forget it's there and i prefer the mint pouches so if you're 21 or older consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more you can order nicotine pouches online they ship directly to most states or check out their store locator 
to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that... Being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Okay. Uh, Danielle, can you walk us through your heart recipe? Do your heart the recipe. The one I just did, or yeah, man. a. Um, I want I want to leave people with a, with a good. Um, if you want to leave people with that, then I, got, I want to bring up one more thing about uh, this. We're talking about waterfowl and uh, oh shit, how it yeah. Tastes. No, please go ahead. Because our buddy Boomer Hesley wrote in. I think I mentioned this to you about how we're always talking about meat care for big game in the field, mm. but rarely. Is that ever brought up for small game upland waterfowl? And he was saying, like, yeah, in Montana, you shoot a bird today, probably pretty chilled out in 30 minutes, right? Even with all the feathers and on it, whatnot. But if it's a 60, 70 degree day down south and you're not gutting immediately because you're spending three, four hours in the duck blind, like, how is that changing the meat? You know, how is that changing flavors, you know, that you got going on in there? You're asking me? Yeah, I'm just kind of put, throwing that out there because it's just it's something that I feel like like we're hammering on it with about like yeah. getting guts out and hanging big game this that and the other and it's just not not nearly discussed as much. With I got a few basic waterfowl. thoughts. I got a few basic thoughts on it. But again, because it's wild game, I can't like come and tell you absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're not nearly as vulnerable to spoilage as are mammals, large mammals. Okay. Large males, they're so big and there's so much heat in there. And they got that gut, right? That is, depending on, you know, what it was up to, they got that gut that's just full of gallons of stuff that's like ruminating in their gut and producing gas, right? It's just different. 
I think they're not nearly as vulnerable to spoilage. And I think there's something about the chest cavity on a bird that sort of, you can have one thing going on inside the gut cavity, and it's not as readily permeating its surroundings because of the breast bone and that you're not really eating the meat out of the inside of the back. So if you leave a big game animal ungutted for too long, you wind up losing all the organ meat, the inside tenderloins spoil very quickly. The You have spoilage that starts at the ball joints and the rear legs and seems to spread very quickly. I just don't see it like moving around. Like a, a rot doesn't move around a bird in this sort of like cancerous way that rot moves around a big animal. But if you like to eat the gizzards and the liver and the hearts, which are all worth a try, I think that you need to get them out of there in a hurry. And also there's a thing to do with just like how pleasant the cleaning process is. And with squirrels, rabbits, ducks, geese, pheasants, after a few hours of wandering around in your game bag on a warm day, it just becomes like gutting them and cleaning them becomes not as fun because the, the smell is so offensive and horrible. And it just leaves you with a, like a negative feeling about it. And I think if you could take a duck or goose pheasant, whatever, and it happens when you get some snow on the ground, right? And you quickly gut it out, clean everything out, put, pack some snow in there, wipe it all out, clean your heart, liver, gizzard, shove them back in there. It just is clean and nice and beautiful. And it's not like that, just the nastiness of, of gutting a bird that you should have gutted a long time ago. But for what I would, like the best duck that I've dealt with then I'm going to be done talking about it. You guys can talk about it. The best duck that I've dealt with has been like, take a duck, gut it, clean it up. I put it in a brown paper grocery sack. I roll that brown paper grocery sack up, and I stack those sons of bitches in my fridge like firewood, and then I don't mess with them for three or four days. Hmm. Gutted? Gutted. Yeah. Wrapped in a newsprint mm-hmm. or, or grocery sacks. And a little bit of that wrapping, it's just like it keeps it from drying out because you got that gutting incision, so everything starts to dry from there. And also some people like don't like it. And there's like parasites in the feathers that get all over shit. And so your wife opens it up and it's kind of like, what in the world? <laughs> but if you just like roll it up in newsprint or roll it up in a brown paper bag, put it in there for three or four days, and you get it out and you get like a duck, and it winds up being that you could almost picture scraping that breast meat away with your thumb, that shit is good. That's all I got to say about it. Didn't in uh, in in uh, generations past and help me out if you guys know this story. Hanging, yeah. Wouldn't they hang it by the neck and when when it fell to the ground and you still had the head up in the string or the noose? Then it was ready. Then mm-hmm. it was ready. That's like a Scofier stuff, man. Yeah. yeah, I used to hang a bunch of my birds in North Dakota. Yeah. It was always we do it in a garage and it really. Sorry, all... quick question interruption. Gutted mm-hmm. or not gutted? I did both. Okay, this is interesting. I want to hear this. I honestly can't remember if I thought there was a huge difference between the two, gutted and not gutted. But I'd say most of them well, I the did. Well, the liver damn sure would be different. Yeah, I don't think the ones that we kept um, internals in, we didn't need those. Oh, yeah, that'd be nasty. So, yeah. So, like, if the ones that we did gut, we would keep that sort of stuff. But, yeah, we um, – a lot of times we – come home from a hunt depending on the temperature our garage could sort of stay insulated and if it was the right time of the year if it didn't get too cold um, below freezing we would just hang them up in the garage we'd we'd have um 
what we hang our deer on. We just get um, the straps. I have all of them hanging up there. And it was nice um, because I would only come home from work, clean like two birds a night. The next night, clean another two birds. And I'd always write on the package how many days they were aged. And I actually have a lot in my freezer that I need to take each day out that I um, aged it for to tell the difference. We did it with a lot of Canada geese um, and some snows, but I've always found that snows are always tender no matter what, especially in the Ross's geese. And um, I, I couldn't age. The, the problem is I couldn't tell if aging it really tenderized the meat or if that goose was just a much younger goose versus an older goose. Yeah. So it's like you just keep getting these variabilities that you're just like, how do you create the same standardization to test all these things? It's it's really hard. And then the weather changes, and I'm like, I can't hang these. i got to clean them all now or or whatever. But That's my brother who's a statistician. He's an ecologist but does a lot of statistical modeling and statistical analysis. And mm-hmm. he, he like a pet peeve of his is people who look and they make assumptions about the constants. And they're like, oh, uh, it seems like the pheasants that you kill on a Monday taste better than the ones you kill on a Wednesday. Because he's like, there are so many variables going on all the time. And people go like, the smallmouth bass are only hitting chartreuse. Mm-hmm. Because I tied a chartreuse on and caught a smallmouth all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, but the angle of the sun also changed. The barometric pressure also changed. Your boat moved. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really, people, hunting and fishing people always want to be like, that's it. Yeah. It's chartreuse. Yeah. It's Monday. Yeah, people people want a hard answer. And it's not easy thing to, to answer because you you're tired after a hunt like it's hard to like get a piece of paper out and say i have x amount of snow goose this one is all white this one has a lot of gray mm-hmm. in it i know that one's like and then mark it how many days it's like that's like serious research going on mm-hmm. and and you don't always and i was working a full-time job in north dakota and so it was just like all those things at that point in time didn't really click that i should be like documenting because we, <laughs> we had so many birds that I really could have done a really nice study, but I just didn't think about that at the time. Did you ever hang it long enough to, that, uh, that it fell, fell off? Uh, no, but I hung it long enough that my dog ate a whole <laughs> goose, and then we were like, all right, that's enough. I'm going oh, to hang a dog this year until its body falls off. I was going to say, I just, I just made it. Actually, I have done that before. I have had the body fall off, but I think the neck had already been broken from the string, so I don't think it counts. Count. It's not a true... Uh, not a yeah. true, not a true lynching. Yeah, yeah. but you got to keep the temperature really constant or in between. Uh, maybe I don't know if in medieval times they had the opportunity to do that, unless they had a root cellar or something that was fifties or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But I, I made a lot of notes here, so if I have the opportunity to be back on this podcast, I'm going to have answers to a lot of these things because I'm going I'm to really, have, yeah, I'm going to test them this winter. Bird fowl, mule deer fat. Um, what the hell is shot gobble? That was in the beginning of our. Oh, mm. shot gobble is when a turkey. <laughs> Do you t- do you hunt much turkeys? No. Okay. Uh, man, a shot gobble is when a turkey gobbles to a sudden noise that isn't another turkey. Mm-hmm. So, for whatever reason, when they're amped up in the spring and they're gobbling a lot, um, they get so keyed up. As Will Primo says, it's just them announcing to the world that it's their time of year. They get so keyed up that just any kind of sudden alarming noise okay. 
they'll gobble to it. Thunder. The same way they'll gobble to a gobble. Like, like, like mm. really, you think like, like a turkey, one turkey gobbles, he's like, gobble, gobble, gobble. and another turkey's like, you're not the man, I'm the man, gobble, gobble, gobble. right? But they get like, with just anything going on. So dogs barking, thunder, and we have kind of a running list of things that people have heard turkeys respond to. I've like sonic booms, hmm. um, Seth throwing a rock at a stop sign, car doors slamming, car horns going off, dogs barking, crows cawing, uh, blue yeah. jays, geese honking, geese honking, a red tail hawk going. Arr! So shot, shock. Oh, it's a shock gobble. It shocks them. I thought it was with a T shot, and I was thinking, uh, you know, like... No, well, but they but do shock gobble the shots. They shock <laughs> gobble the shotguns, damn sure. Well, see, question answered. Um, yeah. Can I add one thing? I don't know how close you are here, but... Um, no, no, go ahead, man. So, I, I decided I'm going to end on something different. Okay. But you go ahead. Um, oh, I just wanted to add uh, a, 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 a thought onto the gray rabbit story. For for, <laughs> um, is, this, is this a redemption? Some sort of saving? Yeah. Well, I think we have to have takeaways. This can't just be shooting the shit. No. And um, and so if I was to offer anything that I believe to be truth in in when it comes to cooking, wild game or not, this is just broadline cooking. Is um is methodology super key? You know, and just as, as we spend so much time focused on the gear, the technique, mm-hmm. how much, how many hours we spend on Google Maps and everything else pouring over where we're going to go and what we're going to go do. And um, if you enjoy a good meal, that chef in that restaurant and that entire team has spent equivalent amount of time researching how to make your meal great, mm. right? So they're doing the exact same thing you're doing in preparation for hunting in preparation of a meal. And so... Though it may sound daunting, you don't need to be a chef to be a good cook, is to focus on methodology. Because methodology, you see a bumpy two-track road, you know four-wheel drive on. Dunk. You see more than 12, inch, 12 inches of snow, you know, maybe it's drifted, it's 24 inches of snow, you know chains on, right? Those are the things we've learned. So with methodology, and maybe we can get here on a later podcast where we can write about it, is methodology is your snow chains and four-wheel drive and, you know, rain jacket. And it is your tool to cookery is knowing good methodology. So you get a super tough, tough animal with brazing techniques, with proper methodology, smoking, you're going to break that thing down and it'll be palatable. So to the gray rabbit, one thing that is less methodology, but is still a skill. And Danielle said it in the very beginning, which is we eat with our eyes, Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the easiest fuck, put lipstick on your food. And what I mean by that is put your makeup on like garnishing a dish is one of the most underrated, easy to do things that changes the experience for anybody. So your gray rabbit and, and, you know, you have your, you know, hopeful sweetheart or whomever coming over to eat. And you're like, man, this is not looking, you know, how I <laughs> want it. Um, fresh herbs, fresh chopped herbs, not only add great flavor to it, but, um, we are adds like a pop visual and visually it's like makeup it's mascara for your food it's like we when you see chopped parsley or chopped herbs on food it's like oh this was like it's cared for this was done by someone that knows what's up Mm -hmm. you know and so i would just add that in and that um is that methodology is going to become really key for folks that want to get into game cookery and then garnishing just um a little bit of fresh herbs on there or you know crumbled dried bacon or, you know, just adding a little extra something Mm -hmm. gives it a mask, gives it a top coat, you know? Yeah, I'll agree with you on that. I think 
these methods are the foundation. And once you figure out those things, then everything everything clicks. You can cook anything because it's the same process over and over, over and over again. So, Ridge Pounder, do you think that uh, – would you rather that we call you the gray rabbit? No. No. <laughs> no. No, thank you. <clears throat> GR? I mean – Instead of RP? Uh, it's not bad. The gray rabbit. The gray rabbit. You just Come don't really that. know the story. You know what? I'll embrace the story. There's a people out there that have probably been in that same predicament. It's a good uh, learning experience. Oh, yeah, man. I'm, I remember in cooking school when I was 18, I, uh, I, uh, I served a pasta dish with a sauce called arrabbiata. It's like mm-hmm. a spicy tomato sauce. Yeah. You know, in restaurants, you'll see penne arrabbiata a lot. And um, so I was making, she just was like a, we'd been dating for like a month. And I was, made, I was in culinary school. I was 18 years old. And I was like trying to pull out all these tricks. But I made a penne arrabbiata. And... Uh, she found a goddamn nipple in her in her dish. A human nipple? No. <laughs> oh. No, but a nipple nonetheless. <laughs> and there I am, you know. And yet when you, you know, I was like, oh, well, that's because we just learned how to cure bacon in charcuterie class. And I had a slab of bacon, like belly, a, a oh, whole belly. Billy, belly, and we hadn't trimmed the skin off. You garnished it with nipples. <laughs> I cut the slab and rendered it to make the sauce, and yet there happened to be this whole nipple that made it in. The rogue nipple that <laughs> yeah. got in there. God, man. The rogue nipple. That's funny. That's a good, that's a good that's a name for a book right there, the rogue nipple. <laughs> a culinary tale. Yeah, there you go. The rogue nipple. <laughs> uh, Danielle, can you real quick zap everyone? I'm going to let you take your pick. I want you to zap everyone with um, – Man, how come no one notified me that I'm not running the right angle on my mic? Can you zap everyone real quick with either? This is chef's choice. With either the heart recipe or the Roadhouse Snow Goose Steakhouse dish. Oh, I want to talk about the Snow Goose. Set, um, set the stage how everybody shit talks snow geese all the time. Yeah, so... A very, very common conversation that takes place is, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, we got into some snow geese. I got this great recipe. Let me tell you. And they go on and on and on and on. And then they tell you to eat the rock, throw the, throw yeah. the meat away. And then I chuckle. People still like, use that joke. Yeah. And then you eat, it's the, like, bo- I, I, then you eat I li- the board. And then I, li- I listen to the whole story every time. Like it's the first time I've heard it and laugh and you cry do? inside. Oh, I laugh because I'm like, I can't believe he's telling me this story. So you story. go along with it. Well, I they know to, when people that do I that, cook game. When people do so that joke with me, I try to meet them with the stone coldest, most indifferent face they've ever seen. <laughs> really? I can't, yeah. I can't do that. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's not quite right. The viewers can't see the face I just tried to make, but no, I don't. And then was, eat the you, board. You looked confused in that one. Oh, Which would be a good way. I'm to not a good. At, I'm not like good at that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so that conversation happens a lot, and and I, I get so sick of it, and I get so sick. It's almost like an offense to me, in a ways to to say how much I love eating snow goose, and they're like, "Let me tell you how bad it is." I'm like, "Are you calling me a bad cook?" It could be. I mean, my husband's the only one who really eats my food and he'll eat anything. But so, 
So to everybody out there who does not like snow goose or that you throw it away or whatever you do with it, let me let me change your mind a little bit. I call it the steakhouse goose, and this is something I do with my sous vide, and I cook it. For anybody who comes over for dinner, that's usually what I'm cooking is is a snow goose. So I'll take it out of the freezer, let it sit in the fridge for a couple days or however long till I'm ready to cook. Pat it dry, a little salt, a little pepper. Sometimes I'll get crazy with garlic or thyme. And then a little bit of ghee in there, which is clarified butter. Butter that the milk solids have been taken out. It gives it a higher smoke point, which you don't really need it for sous vide. I just, I think ghee has a better flavor because I think ghee, the difference between ghee and clarified butter, I think they toast, toast it differently. But anyway, that's besides the point. So, and then I put it in my vacuum sealer, sous vide it, and I usually do it about 128 to 130, which is on the rare side of medium rare. So that way, when all of the breast meat is finished, comes out of the bag, they're all cooked to the same temperature. So about two hours at 130. Yeah. So my rule of thumb is for every half inch thickness of meat, you should be sous viding at least for 30 minutes. And that's if it's already sort of like defrosted, pull it out to room temperature. If it's frozen, it's like add an hour or more to that. Um, so every half inch. And then the funny thing about geese, when you cook them, they like to sort of condense and shrink up and they get thicker. So I always add at least another 30 minutes to that. So if that geese is only an inch thick, I'm still going to sous vide it for about an hour and a half, maybe. So because it's an inch thick, but as you cook it, it's going to become an inch and a half yeah, thick. Yeah, it's about three-quarter inch thick. Half inch, three-quarter yep. inch for a snow. And so I take it out, pat it dry, either seared in a cast iron or on the grill, because everybody wants their steak cooked a little bit differently. So I always started at like the rare side. Medium rare is sort of the mm. baseline, because that's what I like to eat. I don't know if somebody else wants it longer, then I just sear it for a little bit longer. And that is hands down... Everybody is obsessed with it. I I love it. It's like my my steakhouse goose. Good. That's it. Thanks. Pretty, pretty simple. It is really simple. Skin on, skin off. Just the breast meat we're talking about here. Yeah, this is just the breast meat. No, no skin. Have you ever rendered out all your goose fat? Uh, I've tried. We. I saved, actually, I think I still have some. I think I froze it. I don't know if that's, that's probably a terrible idea. But sometimes if I get like only two geese and their thigh meats, uh, usually like in that pocket between the thigh and the bottom of the breast, exactly. plate, I'll always have like a lot, of, a lot of fat in there. And so if I'm just cooking dinner that night, I'll just throw it in the pan and let it sort of melt uh, to brown the food that I'm cooking. And then the fat melts out and you're still left with some like kind of collagen-ish tissue i'll throw that out and then brown the meat in there yeah you can freeze it and then render it you can yeah like when you when you got you know when you got a goose and you reach into that gutting incision those big fat globs like right in the oh, bottom yeah yeah there's you can, you can freeze those things the around tail, there's a you can get a hunk of it yeah stuff's good uh yanni final thoughts i was gonna say how much we we're talking about thawing meat and I was thinking about what I did a bunch this uh, summer because uh, my house and kitchen were in disarray. And so once because we, of a remodel. Yeah, once we had the new deck up, which is like kind of a dark brown board, and it's south-facing, so it gets the sun. You thought you'd meet out in the heat? <laughs> yeah, direct. 
Well, in those pinch <laughs> in those pinch moments, right? Because you're like painting, and then you're like, "Oh shit, it's uh, six, you know, and the one kid's melting, melting, and you're like, "I need some thought out meat fast." I don't have a sink, so you know, running underwater's out. There's no, there's nothing. So yeah, I was gonna say that's one of the great things about like the vac sealed, like heavy duty. We use Weston bags. They're heavy duty enough where literally you can like run, grab it out of the freezer and then like slide it out onto the deck in the sun. And like 30 minutes later, I run out there and I've got something to work with. You just hold the health department and it has to come by. Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Or OSHA during our remodel. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's your concluder? Yes. Nice work. Thanks. Eduardo, finals, concluders? Um, you know, I think on, on my end, uh, no, I, uh, I'm excited for, I mean, we've archery seasons wrapping this weekend here in Montana and, um, and that means rifle and then, um, bird seasons kind of upon us. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited to be out eating a little bit more, um, you know, foraging seasons coming to a foraging for non animal based things is coming to a pretty quick halt here. It's going to be hidden under some snow, man. Yeah. It's gonzo. Yeah, I'm going to go out this weekend, and I was thinking about it. I was like, man, I think the only thing that will be out there worth picking if I see it is rose hips, and that's about it. So, yeah. Um, we found, like, at the bottom of scree slides and stuff, mm-hmm. we found uh, queen bleats melting out of, you know, that can survive. This time of year? Yeah. Snow, frozen, right? And you still find queen bleats. Yeah. That are fine. Wow. I take That's it. one of the things that surprised me. Like one of the latest things I've picked have been queen bleats. We've even Mushrooms. picked frozen queen bleats. They like they can thaw and be fine. Bet they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Butternut. That's like the kind of the the last thing you find of the stuff that like dies. You know. Oh, I do, and I do. Sorry, I do have a clothing. Do you, oh, real quick, do you deal with rose hips? What do you like to do with them? Um, you Make know, jam. I, in the past, well, I, we've worked with it once before, but um, I don't do a ton with them um, beyond like teas and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but chutneys, uh, jams, uh, they're they sweeten. There's a lot. There's a ton of vitamin C and antioxidants in there. Uh, they're easy to pick, and it's, they're not hard to find. And they live everywhere. They live everywhere. So there's no, there's really no one who can't go find. Them. I just don't like going home empty-handed, so I kind of feel like <laughs> I got to come home with something. Oh, I, <clears throat> sorry, we got to bring up the uh, spiny rose hip. That we ran into in Washington. Spineless. Spineless? Yeah, all rose, all rose hips, the wild rose. No, 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 the, the fruit itself. Oh, remember? yeah. You ever see a rose hip where the, the, the hip, like the rose hip, the fruit is spiny? Mm-mm. No, did you guys come across that on your archery hunt? Hunting southeast Washington. Yeah. Hmm. We puzzled over it. Yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of different varieties of rose hips out there. Spiny. Yeah. Huh. Um, so freezing, we're talking about that a bunch. So I have a thought on freezing that I can close with is that I do believe that um, freezing is one of the greatest inventions of the modern world when it comes to eating and sustainability for the human race. It's just being able to freeze things is amazing. And um, But I freeze. I try to be real conscious when I'm breaking down an animal. And I know a lot of folks, it's it's good. It's, it's pretty easy and... and, and um, it can be a super boon to timing when you need a quick meal is to have your steaks already cut into two per bag. It's you and the missus thought out. Um, I tend to almost always freeze the whole muscles when I can. Um, 
it's kind of like that protective skin on the tongue we were talking about. Just things happen. Your bags get punctured when the freezer, you know, it's in the back and you uncover it in March and there's a little frost burn on it somewhere. And I feel like even to the point where I will freeze whole muscles with silver skin on the whole nine yards yeah. because I know that when, when it thaws back out, if something's happened to it, I don't want to lose the good stuff inside. So I'll, I'll, I'll trim it off the day I'm cooking it in March or April or May or whenever it is. So that's just one thing I like to do is I like to freeze whole muscles when I can. Yeah, I do like freezing the loin. Yeah. There's always, you kind of want to leave that silver skin on there. But then the thing that's in the back of my head is like, man, when I give it to somebody, mm. then I got to explain it to them and shit. And then what if they don't remember to do it? They're going to have a negative experience. So I'm always weighing in my head. I'll yeah. sometimes put a if I'll sometimes make a piece really perfect where anyone in the world would thaw it out and, and be like, "This is ready to cook. This yep. looks beautiful." Yep. And I'll put a star on the package, or two stars, double in star. extreme cases. And then I'll kind of like look and be like, "Oh, that's one that I could give to someone, and there's going to be no, yeah, puzzlement." Yeah. They're gonna be. They're gonna get it. And they're gonna get it. Right. I want a double starred gift from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds nice. Yeah. Chris? Um, not much of a concluder, but I, I would like if we could like engineer some sort of cook-off between Eduardo and Danielle. Oh. Mostly because not even like the competition side of it, but I just want an excuse to eat really well. <laughs> like That's all it is. I just want to be like a judge just to... The contest is who can give me the most food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, yeah, we can film it or whatever, you know. But well, I think well, one of my thoughts is if if um, I've never hunted snow geese, but I'd love to go on a snow goose hunt. And what I would like to do is I'll take those legs if you're going to take the breast and you got your steak steakhouse recipe, and I'd love to confit those legs. Oh, yes. I love. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. The legs are so good because they have a lot of fat on them. Yeah, they, they braise nice. We should all plan. We should all plan. We should all just go out for snow geese in spring. I was saying to Ben O'Brien yesterday, I was saying uh, there needs to be a meat eater rendezvous, like a full-blown powwow where snow like, goose everybody descends to just do a full-blown where would you want hunting session, eating like the, session. For the spring hunts, you know? No, where? I don't know, over in your neck, old neck of the woods. Yeah, by the Missouri. Yeah. Are they there late in the season? Well, they have that they have that spring, spring season where you don't even need a plug. You can use electron. They shoot, take the, they take the gloves no off, man. Electronic <laughs> calls, no plugs. Yeah, it's crazy. My husband built a his own homemade electronic collar. It didn't work. <laughs> he didn't just want to buy a Fox Pro or whatever. You know, he he does that a lot. He wants to do everything himself. Bless his heart. So it's like you end up like you could just spend the money and get it, but he loves doing things himself. But yeah, and he because he wanted it like white and all like the whole like nine yards and like multiple speakers out throughout the thing. It he it did a work. Sound, a sound system. <laughs> yeah, because whenever surround sound goose calling. Yeah, because like in the middle of the day when you're not doing anything, it's nice to have some music out there. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Seth, concluders. Um, I got a question. Okay, my concluder. Um, back to Oregon meat. I've Not heard Oregon or Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Um, I've heard multiple times people say that like freezing Oregon meat is no good. Yeah, freezing livers is rough <laughs> on livers. Freezing is heart it? doesn't matter. Yeah, that's that was my question. I like, wouldn't what? hesitate to freeze a kidney. Freezing livers just changes the liver. Like the same thing that went in the freezer doesn't come out. Gotcha. 
I think it's like a, it's it's like it's kind of it, like what happens to a fish fillet. Yeah, you you cook it and you wind up with this kind of like to get like mushy inflated. And... No, no, the opposite of mushy. Oh, it's like you take it out and it's like it lets off a shitload. It lets off a lot of water. You take the slice, you throw it in the pan. It kind of deflates. It gets a little raw. It just it's almost like it's not so much you'd say like it's an absolute no no because it's not an absolute no no, but it's definitely not. It's something you just eat it when you get it. My guess it ain't that big. My guess is is uh is liver um fall into the category of muscle? No. Heart does. Heart does. So uh, my take my guess would be that it's just the the um it's a more naturally tender the the the, the makeup of that structure is delicate, right? Gotcha. And so when you're freezing it, you are rupturing through expansion yep. the cellular walls of protein and, and that organ. And so when you thaw it, it's yep. it's losing its okay. natural structure and web. It's a real letdown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially dishes if you're making dishes like uh, like 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 liver pate and, and and dips and things like that, just isn't the same. So if you're messing with the liver, you want to mess with it like Should right away. The first thing take you the eat. you kill a younger deer, take the liver home, slice it in quarter inch slices, soak it. People, my mom used to take soak it in lemon, like water with a lemon squeezed into it, or even like those mm-hmm. used to buy those little bottles of lemon juice. Mm-hmm. Put lemon juice in water because it's a little bit acidic, and a little bit of it somehow seems to dissolve and pull out more blood. People use people take liver home and soak it in salted water. People take it home and soak it in water, but it does. You, you, you'll pull out, and the water becomes like a rose color. Like it's definitely dissolving and pulling out some of the blood. And then cook it. Don't. It's just the first thing you should eat. Freeze all the other stuff. That's my concluder. Danielle, you kind of got your concluder. Do you want another concluder? No, I think I'm good. All right. Good job, everyone. Um, next time we all get together, we need to spend a little bit of time talking about game hearts. Till then, thank you. Three days only. Save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in the sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry. The sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com.